Good afternoon. Welcome to the Law and Legislation Committee. This meeting is now called to order. Will the clerk please call the roll to establish a quorum? Thank you, um, Councilmember Kaplan. Here. Vice Mayor Guetta. Here. Councilmember Jennings. Here. And Chair Valenzuela. I am here, and that is Vice Mayor Jennings for us on the on the dais up here. Um, but I will say for the members of the public in chambers, if you wish to speak on an agenda item and are not an applicant, please fill out a speaker slip in the back of the room. For members of the public joining us online that wish to speak, raise your hand to provide public comment when the chair confirms the public comment period speaking uh, speaking period for your desired item. Sorry, I need to rewrite this a little. Um, if you're online, you can just click the raise hand button and there are telephone prompts as well. If you dial star nine, you will get in the queue and star six unmutes yourself. You'll have two minutes to speak once you're called on. And with that, we'll move on to the land acknowledgement. Um, Councilmember Garrett, Vice Mayor Garrett, would you like to lead us? Yes, well, thank you. <laughs> Please rise for the opening acknowledgements in honor of Sacramento's indigenous people and tribal lands. To the original people of this land, the Nisenan people, the Southern Maidu, Valley Plains Miwok, the Putwin Winton people, and the people of the Wilton Rancheria, Sacramento's only federally recognized tribe, may we acknowledge and honor the native people who came before us, stand and walk beside us today on these ancestral lands by choosing to gather together today in the active practice of acknowledgement and appreciation for Sacramento's indigenous people's histories, contribution, and lives. Thank you, everyone. Let's uh, uh, face flag, salute, pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Vice Mayor. So we have a pretty full agenda today. I'm really looking forward to the discussions. I wanna make a note that item three is actually on the discussion calendar, um, so it will not be on the consent calendar motion today. So to take up the consent first, that means we have items one and two, the law and legislation log and the law and legislation committee meeting minutes. Do I have any members with questions or comments on those items? I'll, I'll move consent. Great, nice. Excellent. Um, we can do that by acclamation, I think. All those in favor say aye. Madam aye. Chair, do we need to check if there's any public oh, do comment? Do we have any public comment? Thank yeah, you. For the record, I do have no public comment on this item. Thank you. Appreciate that. Awesome. Awesome. So we acclimated. No objections. No abstentions. Awesome. So moving on to item three, um, we'll call up, uh, I think, Peter Lemos um, and Angel from the city attorney's office are here today. Um, we This item is a technical update item that needs some direction. Um, so some of you may remember that last year we updated the healthcare buffer zones ordinance in an, um, an attempt to try to protect safe access to um, healthcare and reproductive healthcare services. Um, one of the issues that has come up is the need for better enforcement mechanisms for amplified sound. Um, to be super clear, and I know we can talk more about this, this would have no bearing on any organized labor demonstrations or anything that involved workers on those premises. This is really about how do we regulate sound that might be interfering with safe delivery of healthcare services. And just in general, I can speak for my district. We talk a lot to Peter and his team about amplified sound that you can hear inside of residents and other business facilities. And we need to update this code more holistically. But really what staff is um, talking about today is a technical update. It wouldn't be the full, the full update that we're hoping to do down the line, which is obviously going to take a lot of time. But this is a surgical update intended to provide some much needed um, protection. So, Peter, I see you're ready to go. We'll take it away, and then we'll have some committee discussion. All right. Good afternoon, uh, board. 
I'm Peter Lemos. I'm your Code and Housing Enforcement Chief for, with the Community Development Department. And I have uh, Angel Solis from the City Attorney's Office here today to assist in any questions. Good afternoon. So we're going to discuss the uh, sound ordinance and uh, some requests for direction from the board. So Sacramento City Code contains several chapters and sections designed to ensure a safe, peaceful environment for residents, businesses, customers, and visitors. Over the years, some of these chapters and sections have become outdated and impractical, impractical to enforce. In other instances, the city code lacks provisions that apply to specific conduct that is intrusive or disturbs the peace. Updating the following list and existing sections of the chapters of the city code will enhance the city's commitment to fulfill the, to our communities the expectations to be safe, vibrant, and peaceful environment, while also providing more contemporary, co um, co comprehensive approach to handling quality of life issues within our community. People have the right to enjoy peace and tranquility, as well as certain right to, to privacy within their homes and their businesses. Existing sound and noise regulations already address portable gas-powered blowers, power tools, fans, in residential neighborhoods. To further these objectives, specific noises and sound levels that would be considered loud or offensive should also be regulated and be enforceable. The prohibited devices that amplify the human voice in areas for residential use, absent a special event permit, are regulated by sound measurement from a certain distance currently. The City Council has a long-standing commitment to supporting policies that protect our residents, our visitors, from quality of life issues that threaten the health, moral, safety, comfort, and convenience of welfare of the community. Local municipalities can regulate certain types of activities, ta activities taking place upon streets, sidewalks, and other traditional public forums, provided their significant government interest in regulating are narrowly tailored. And alternative methods for individuals to express their beliefs and ideas remain available. To ensure the commitment to protecting the city's residents, businesses, and businesses, um, changes the Sacramento City Code will be a start in issuing bringing the ordinance up to date and reflective to the current municipal practices concerning quality of life issues, allowing businesses, visitors, and residents the ability to have peace and enjoyment while simultaneously recognizing the individual's abil uh, ability to express their ideas and beliefs upon the streets, sidewalks, and public places. With recent noise studies, the challenge is soon, as violators see us, they act on their best behavior. They reduce the volume, and they know code cannot respond immediately or stay for an extended period of time. We provided an example of one constituent's um, ideas for types of uh, regulations that would be added, but staff request direction from the board today to amend sections 8.68 of the Sacramento City Code relating to the noise regulations. One, to allow additional enforcement for the public nuisance by other departments. Proposed amendments would provide that oral warning to cease and desist activity in, instead of written, only written warnings. Provide the same enjoyment and peace of commercial health and care, care facilities, schools, and churches in the regulation that residential um, currently receives. And assure each of these types are defined in the code. Define sound equipment and where and how it can be used. This is amplified equipment. Clean up the decibel readings for certain activities and clarify activities such as gas-powered blowers to make all that inclusive. And lastly, to provide authority to the city manager to regulate the code and, and the city manager will be able to um, appoint designees. Excellent, thank you, Peter. 
Um, and this is a little unorthodox, some of you may think, to say, gosh, we're getting this without the actual text in front of us. There is a certain sense of, of timeliness that I think we're responding to from the constituents in the community who are dealing with some aggravated issues right now, and the police and code very clearly articulating that they need they need a technical update so that they can try to take steps to alleviate those concerns. So before we move to uh, member comments, we'll see if there are any public comments, Madam Clerk. Um, Chair, I have no hands raised in Zoom, or apparently I do now. Mm -hmm. um, I have no one in chambers. I have one hand raised on Zoom. First speaker is um, Condolaria um, Vargas. Hello, can you can you hear me now? We can. Wonderful. Hello, my name is Candelaria Vargas. My name, oh, I am the Director of Public Affairs for Planned Parenthood Marmonte. Um, we have three health centers located in the city of Sacramento. And I'll be brief with my comments. We do have some urgency. We have seen um, elevated uh, protester um, activity and harassment at our health center, specifically at our B Street Health Center. But we did previously, um, yesterday actually, experience some elevated protester activity also at our Capitol Center, which is near um, the Capitol. Um, and uh, there's a number of reasons why this is uh, urgent at this time and why this activity is specific to now. Um, there is, a, is an activity called the 40 Days of Life taking place currently. Um, and things are, have been escalating over these past weeks and will continue to escalate. Um, and also there is a federal district case um, uh, regarding abortion access that is taking place. And we also understand that we're not the only folks experiencing um, noise. And we do have some questions um, about the, the language and enforcement and who will be enforcing um, the language, uh, but we are, supportive of a language change to address uh, access to public health care within our health care centers. Um, and I see that I only have 20 seconds left, but um, I think I was able to put across why it is urgent at this time for, for change to be made. Thank you so much, Mr. Lemus. Thank you um, to council members. Appreciate it. Thank you. Next speaker is Maya De La Rosa. Um, hello, Council. My name is Maya De La Rosa. I am the grassroots organizer for Planned Parenthood Marmonte. I am the person who's on the ground who's often going to these health centers and talking with staff and our volunteers. Um, and I can tell you firsthand that uh, since the Dobbs decision, protesters have been more aggressive, especially uh, targeting with their amplified sound certain patients, especially if they have um, religious paraphernalia in their cars, like personally I have been targeted, harassed, um, called many names um, with the use of amplified sound. I can't work in my office without hearing full music and concerts outside um, that they are having, um, as well as I don't, at a certain point, don't feel safe because they've been targeting me and being here and yesterday in particular um, at the Capitol Health Plaza Center. I was there and I had to quickly move past them because um, their aggression um, from uh, protesters has been significantly more in the past couple of months. And it was me wearing a Planned Parenthood shirt, Planned Parenthood shirt, and I didn't feel safe. So if I'm not feeling safe as a staff member and I'm trained to do this every day, I can't imagine patients that have to come in and who are trying to receive healthcare who have to also go through this. So I fully support um, a change in language to 
Uh, make sure that people are able to access quality health care um, comfortably without feeling the need to be harassed. Um, and that will be all the rest of my comment. And I will see my time. Thank you for your comments. The next speaker is um, Decarcerate Sacramento. I'm going to have. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Mackenzie Wilson, an organizer, uh, a community organizer and a grassroots organizer here in Sacramento. Um, I want to uplift the the very real experience of the callers before me um, and the language around access to quality health care. Um, but the truth is, is that um, I, this language is very concerning. Um, and as a community organizer and as a grassroots organizer and as somebody who has actively worked to get people out on these streets to tell y'all and to tell people and to tell or businesses when they are not in the right, this language is very concerning because we can say that it's uh, against these like alt-right, far-right, white ter white supremacist, um, domestic terrorists, um, but then it's going to be used on our own community when we come to hold uh, people like the city council members or when we come to hold law enforcement accountable. Um, and so uh, I think that this kind of idea needs to be taken back to the drawing board um, and that we need to figure out what places and spaces we want to protect. And what I really wanna do while I still have my time is really encourage Planned Parenthood to reach out um, to community organizations in their area who can help build up support. I recognize the noise outside is, is disruptive, but that is the point of the amplified sound. And again, when we come to use it, to hold people accountable from this community, um, then we're gonna have uh, pushback by law enforcement, which oftentimes is the catalyst for why we're in the streets in the first place. So I do anticipate language like this making situations worse um, and it will be counterproductive and it's and, and will limit our ability to, um, to speak. I, I heard somebody say there's many different ways to get their beliefs and their ideas heard. Um, and I'll tell you, as a community organizer who's been doing this for a decade, my ideas and my words have been squashed by the county, by the county and the city and law enforcement for years. So any attempt to take that away from us should be fought back against. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for your comments. Uh, Jared is the final speaker on this item. Hi. Um, yeah, I tuned in just at the end of the presentation, so I'm sorry if I'm lacking some context, but. Um, Noise ordinances really do affect me as well. I'm a, I, my profession is as a street performer and I play music. Um, and I've, I've found that ordinances like this just get used in all these weird and bizarre ways. And I get like whack interactions with security guards telling me that I can't play here. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes, we can. Hello? Okay. Um, yeah, so um, I, I've found that Oftentimes, what we're lacking in these kind of ordinances is trying to solve a problem with an ordinance for something like noise when the problem is something like the woman who spoke earlier saying she doesn't feel safe um, around people in her Planned Parenthood shirt. Those like it's a roundabout way to solve a problem that could be solved more directly. Um, like, and I don't know, like, I, I think there's ways that people can find healthy balances with being able to exercise their free speech as well as like helping people, like not disturbing people from focusing on their work inside of an office next to a protest or whatever. Um, but oftentimes the issues are more like the issues of the protest is causing tension between the different communities and then like people don't feel safe. So I don't, I don't necessarily think of sound as being the core issue there. And oftentimes the ordinances just fall down on like people like me when like a business isn't interested in having a musician outside their, their establishment, they might use some ordinance to enforce the production of sound when 
you know, the, the issue is more like somebody being harassing and, and, you know, intimidating people and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's just my two cents is that these things kind of get lost and go off into different forms of enforcement that aren't super cool. Thank you for your comments. Chair, I have no more speakers. Thank you. Um, I'd love to, to pitch it back to, to staff to just respond to some of these concerns. And I'll just start by saying I think the um, attachments in the staff report are what's misleading people um, because the attachment is the current code, I believe, as well as the code submitted by Planned Parenthood when we were updating the health care ordinance. And so I think I want to make clear that 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 language is not what we are talking about. We're talking about changing that language <laughs> today to make it more specific and to put more more grading in there. But I do want to give Peter and maybe Angel a chance to respond to that as well. Correct. So what we're asking for today is um, direction to change the ordinance of what we would like to see to make it enforceable, to make it um, so that we can uh, respond. And so part of the concern was that this sometimes brings uh, conflict with law enforcement and, and people voicing their, their concern or their, or their protest. This actually allows other, when I mentioned that, allowing other departments to also enforce. This allows for code enforcement actually um, to enforce. So right now, it, many parts of the code only allows the police department or the health officer. This provides the city manager to give direction and to who's going to enforce it. Um, so that will, that will assist in part of that. It also provides that code enforcement has the resources and time to, to do education. So we do outreach and education before enforcement. Um, that, that'll be an intricate part of it. Um, there are still the permits that are allowed. So for buskers, for entertainment, for sidewalk vendors, all these types of uh, uses, there, there's still the permit process. And the city's also doing a live music type of study right now within the city to, to enhance that. So that's a complete opposite of the direction we're going. We're actually trying to enhance live music and performers and such, but unregulated. This is more of amplified sound in a um, out of context area with a disturbance of the peace. Mm -hmm. um, historically and by, by current code, it can only be addressed for residential. It expands it from residential to other commercial and other types of use, and then we define those uses. Yep. And to further clarify um, what staff wishes to do, oh, sorry, can you guys hear me? To further clarify, what staff uh, plans to do is a multifaceted approach with addressing the most pressing concerns in the ordinance first and having additional um, changes to the current noise code, code um, at a future date in increments, whether it's one or two, um, that'll be as needed by staff. And the full language will, will come back to the council, so we'll be able to make further amendments. But as was stated by some of the stakeholders, we have patients right now who are seeking health care who are listening to people over amplified sound saying all sorts of things, and um, that's interfering their ability to safely seek health care resources. And, um, so that's some, one of the primary drivers, I know, for me bringing this forward, but I know there are others as well. So with that, um, we'll go to the committee here, Vice Mayor Guerra and then Councilmember Kaplan. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, first, uh, I want to thank staff for their work on this, and uh, and specifically, I mean, what we're what we're attempting to do here is create that flexibility, create different tools. Uh, one, obviously, we nothing in this ordinance or this the proposal and the direction that staff is seeking here is um, uh, is intended to prohibit people from actually speaking their beliefs or making their statements. But what it is, and what we are trying to solve is 
the uh, the intentional tool of noise as a uh, a, 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 a restriction to access to health care in, in this particular case, but used in a harassing and an aggressive way. And that, uh, and that I think, is well within the city's uh, jurisdiction of, of providing, you know, safety and then making sure that we have access to public health as well. Uh, you know, I was proud to second the uh, buffer zone ordinance. I think that's uh, an important step that the city took. Uh, in in balancing those uh, those uh, those rules and with that madam chair I'll go ahead and move uh, the uh, the item to provide staff direction to move forward in authorizing um, a uh, uh, you know the the city manager and uh, uh, to have the additional tools and I think that's the the point we could look use at different tools versus just the penal code we could use the administrative tools to move forward with that so uh, I'll go ahead and move um, uh, move uh, the, a staff direction to move in the in this and expediently because I think every day that this continues um, there are uh, patients who are seeking care looking for access to health care and uh, and they're being restricted so uh, with that um, sense of urgency um, madam chair I'll move the item Thank you, Vice Mayor. And is it okay to add um, direction if, with the will of the committee that they bypass law and ledge and go straight to council when they're ready? Um, I just don't want to, we only meet yes. twice a month and I want to make sure that comes. Okay. Yeah, that, and that's um, what I meant by urgency, okay, okay, but you have to be sure. clear. I want to be yeah. super specific. Yeah, yeah, no need to come to law and ledge, just go straight to city council. Yep, okay. that's correct. And so it was yeah. a move by Vice Mayor and a second by Councilmember Kaplan. Thank you. Go ahead, Councilmember. So I just want to clarify a couple things um, for the record. as we're looking at the potential language that's attached to the item in the agenda, yes or no? No. Okay, the, the that, that is sample language. What is the purpose? Because if I was a member of the public and I go in and I look at this, I would think that, the, that us sitting up here on the dais are deciding on that language. What is that language for? I believe staff attached that as, uh, as it was submitted by one of the care holders. Okay. As a sample of I, so so, but I just want to make sure that the public and others know that this is just a sample. This is not the language that we here on the on the dais are authorizing. But we're basically saying move forward, work with legal counsel because um, again, it has to be narrowly tailored when we're looking at this. This is you know definitely a a hot button legal item. So I wanted to make sure it was very clear that the direction we're giving is not the language that's attached but it's language arounding that and to making sure it's narrowly tailored so that it then really is looking to apply to healthcare facilities. Um, I see that 8.68100 is schools, healthcare centers, hospitals, and churches. Is that what we're looking just to specifically narrowly tailor uh, for an adoption? That is one of the sections that is currently uh, being drafted um, by the city attorney's office. Okay. But not with that okay. language. Yeah. I would hope that uh, I would also have the committee support to make sure that the direction back to our city attorney is for that narrow tailoring, which I know that they're doing, but it stays within this specific subject matter um, that it goes to schools, healthcare centers, hospitals, churches, which are already kind of recognized so that it addresses two of the comments that people called in to make sure that this is not an overly broad, which then we don't need to defend um, a lawsuit uh, in that it is clearly stated how it will be enforced and what that process is for enforcement. But with that, okay. Thank you, Vice Chair Jennings. 
Thank you very much. I think you can hear me here. Um, so I guess my, my point is questioning not coming back to Law and & Ledge. And the reason I'm making that point is because I don't see a timeline for it to come to the council. So I'm trying to understand what the timeline is because it could come back to Law & Ledge before it goes to the full council. So it, unless there's a timeline that it comes back before the full council, before it can come back here, I just want to know what the timeline is for it to get to the council. Peter and Angel, do you want to update on, I know the timeline's been shifting around. We've been trying to address this as quickly as possible, um, but um, yeah, go ahead. Yes, we, it's currently going um, to the city attorney's door committee on March 13th. Um, I would defer to maybe some members of the door committee here as to how long we might need after that. So I think the, the hope was that it would go to the internal review committee on the 13th, which is Monday, um, and then it would get passed for publication on the 21st at city council so that we could vote on it at the following council meeting is the hope. Is that correct, city attorney? I don't know what the specific plan was, um, but that could happen, sure, certainly. Okay. So I guess um, that's just, it's more just out of the situational the situation that we're experiencing and trying to be responsive. Yeah, and, and I, I, I totally understand and, and want to be responsive as well. And I think I understand the problem, but I've heard the question on enforcement. I've heard the question now on process. Um, I don't want to rush in an attempt to not be able to get it right and also put the city in a position of, of, of liability. And so that's why I'm asking the question now so that we can understand why it should not come back here and that we can put a plan in place, an ordinance in place that can go to the full council um, for us to be able to understand that it meets the needs that we would like to, for it to do so. So I know our next committee meeting, I believe is on the 21st. Um, I'm looking at staff, and I know this is an impossible question to answer in the moment, but um, it would delay us another potential week or two on implementation, but it'd be a month? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Councilmember Jennings, if, um, unfortunately, not, not only just the, um, the timing of law and ledge, but then the, our Brown Act requirements for noticing mm -hmm. would delay two weeks plus because we have to go through uh, pass for publication that just on the council itself is is, is a two-week uh, interval um, if there if it gives you any sense of confidence um, even before we take a final vote on the council we will see it in pass for publication a week prior so we'll actually see the full language before any final vote will happen um, so we will actually have that I think that bandwidth to be able to do it now that one of the reasons that we're, we're uh, asking to move expeditiously is because this could be a month even between this week, almost five weeks, uh, if we delayed it for our next uh, Law and Legislation Committee for us just to review. So I, I guess I would say is if it gives you any comfort, uh, we will, this, this council, this members of this committee will see it in pass for publication um, at least a week before we take action on it. Okay. And if there are issues there, we'll still have an opportunity at the council meeting to address it as well. Yeah. 
I, I just want to say I'm conferring with the clerk over here because um, we're getting into an area of the rules of procedure that I'm less familiar with. Um, she's saying that she thinks there there is a way to, I don't know, Madam Clerk, if you want to just actually say what you just said to me rather than me relay. So pass for publication, you would um, pass for publication, then we print the title and summary. Um, if you waive pass for publication, we just print the whole ordinance in full. So there's another option. So we'd come be able back to, even sooner. Yeah, so it would come to council sooner, then we wouldn't need to wait the additional week. So if we come to, if we can bring the ordinance language to law and legend the 21st, which is in two weeks, which would be a week after the DORC meeting. Bring it back to law and ledge? Yeah, okay. and then we'd go straight to council and waive pass for publication. Does that, does that help? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I think either one, pass for publication and then to council or back to this committee and then to council, either one of those works. I'm just... I want to make sure that we do this right as opposed to rush through it and not get it right. No, I, I definitely appreciate that. And to that end, I know at the end of council, I think the week before last, I asked for direction to work with Planned Parenthood on the language because we definitely want to make sure that this meets their needs. I know you're already in communication, but um, yeah, we definitely accept and um, acknowledge the sense of urgency here on this committee. So we'll bring it back on the 21st for full full ordinance text so we can look at it, dot the I's, cross the T's, send it straight to council, bypass pass for publication. And if there's any changes to that, I might circle back with you, Vice Chair, and just check in with you um, to make sure that we And, and Vice good. Mayor, we agree to amend our emotions yes. to encompass what the Chair just said. So um, the clerk just informed me since this is provide direction, we don't actually need a okay. motion. But, um, Sweet. But you will be acknowledged as the first two who said, let's do it <laughs> here on the record. Um, but I, just, I really appreciate, Peter and Angel, your, your work on this and the committee, your indulgence of this sort of unorthodox process for this. Um, it's been, I mean, B Street is, is in my district, obviously, as is the capital city location. It's been um, pretty heartbreaking to realize that our city team doesn't have the tools to protect those patients. So um, I hope that this will be a good, a good outcome for everybody. Um, great. All right. Nothing else on this item, then we will move on. Item number four, a workshop on considerations for amending the city code to include a process for allowing digital streetlight pole banners in the city of Sacramento. Welcome. The zoning administrator, I'll be giving a presentation for agenda item number four workshop on digital banners. By way of overview, we'll, um, I'll touch on the origin of this request, talk about what are banners, what are digital banners, I'll summarize existing city regulation for banners, I'll then uh, walk you through a series of considerations or questions for you to think about as we talk about this topic and then options for direction to conclude the presentation today. On January 10 of this year, at the City Council meeting, request was made by Council Member Gare to add this item for discussion and direction. It is uh, number 22 on your log, and we're here today to talk about it. it. May be intuitive to many of you, but just for those that are curious, well, what is a, what a banner? Conventionally, typically, you probably see these around town, different colors, generally the same rectangular shape. Um, presently composed of fabric, a vinyl fabric, uh, been around for many decades. They're usually along commercial corridors. They identify particular neighborhoods, 
certain civic events that may be occurring, and generally they exclude commercial advertising with a very limited and restrictive provision for a sponsor to be identified on a fabric banner. Here are some examples in the community of these existing fabric banners on K Street, on Broadway, you see them attached and really to light poles of different types and designs. Digital banners. This would, uh, proposal uh, or consideration is to replace uh, some of these fabric banners with a digital screen still attached to the pole. You see a photo rendering here. If you look at that sort of uh, blue, light blue tone on the pole in the, in the, above the street, you can see an example of a digital banner. I'll show you another rendering in a moment. Uh, this uses modern technology. Uh, it is uh, perhaps analogous to a TV, a flat screen TV, where that image can change. And there is additionally an option uh, proposed for commercial advertising. Here is a photo rendering of a local example of what that may look like. You see wide um, open walls on the left, which is a fabric banner with the bear icon, and then an after of a digital banner on the right-hand side. Same, same general size location, except digital. How are banners regulated currently? There are two titles of city code that cover this topic. The first of which, Title Three, that's Chapter 3.76. You can think of this as encroachments into the public right-of-way. The city issues revocable permits for both construction activities for liability purposes, for example, Additionally, for the placement of physical features, either temporarily or permanently within the right-of-way, the city provides a permit process to propose and obtain such approval. And then secondly, if commercial advertising is included within a digital banner, then that would touch on Chapter 15, and that's 15.148, which we know as our sign ordinance. Presently, it prohibits commercial messaging on banners, uh, the limited, uh, or another example of that where you uh, undoubtedly have seen it be allowed is a billboard. That is general advertising off-site for hire for a business which is not located on the premises of the sign. A series of considerations to walk you through. Uh, I'll, I'll just touch on these um, each in sequence. As you think about digital banners in this uh, request for direction, it would constitute an expansion of advertising in the, in the city, if you so chose. Secondly, uh, this technology in our quick assessment is, is untested, it's new, it's novel. We were not able to identify another jurisdiction in the state of California that has used this technology. If it were to be uh, considered for placement, there are concerns about its weight, the structural stability of placing a heavier object, an object which does not um, flex in the wind, for example, that is exposed to the elements. Um, that could lead um, temporarily to disruption of businesses or homes that are within the vicinity for their construction and placement, which would include more than replacing a fabric on a pair of poles, but rather an installation of electricity. Other considerations could include electrical source. There is the need for wiring and metering. How the poles are currently lit for streetlight purposes differs for what a banner and advertising purposes might constitute, so we will need to, uh, would need to consult with our partners at SMUD. 
Um, there is no infrastructure currently for these. They are, uh, as, as a fabric entity, they, they have no wires connected to them. Um, these devices would emit light in the right-of-way, which would be a new source. So consideration of light pollution and glare at night is an item we've identified. Next, technology rapidly is expanding. Devices change with each year or season, and this device eventually would perhaps be outdated. And another, another technological innovation would potentially replace it. So there is a lifespan, generally, is my point, with technology and these types of devices. Uh, there is uh, concern about safety and how, how um, vehicular traffic may or may not interact and how a display which changes copy may or may not distract a driver, so we're calling that uh, to attention in need of analysis. Uh, next, a resource commitment. This uh, proposal, if it were to move through city code amendment process, uh, is a multi-departmental effort that touches on community development, information technology, public works, economic development. So each, each of these departments would be involved in various stages of its implementation. Moving towards the end here, uh, in terms of precedent, there is an element here where digital billboards are currently limited to billboards that you see along major freeways. They are very restrictive in terms of city code regulation, and there is a limited um, provision for them in the ESC area in our, in our city center. This may constitute an expansion of that. And if we're looking at the content of these digital banners, uh, fabric banners are, have been routinely regulated by public works for content. Um, we would need to look at new standards for the devices themselves, what types of images can they display. Some of those topics may be sensitive or um, charged. And with or without general advertising um, for consideration. All right, to wrap it up, we're looking forward to your direction on how to proceed with this log item. We've identified a couple options. First, no further action. Secondly, to proceed with drafting amendments to the revocable permit portion of the city code. And then second, uh, if commercial messaging is desired to move into a site ordinance amendment as well. So with that, I'll say thanks. I'm happy to address any questions you have. Thank you, Kevin. I think before we move to questions, we'll see if there's any public comment, Madam Clerk. I do have two hands raised. The first is Annie Keyes. <coughs> Hi, good afternoon, Chair Valenzuela, members of the Law and Legislation Committee and city staff. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak this afternoon. This is Annie Keyes here on behalf of the Downtown Sacramento Partnership to convey our support to pursue the opportunity to allow the installation of digital streetlight pole banners within the public realm. Digital banners offer an innovative and future forward alternative to the static banners that are currently in place while replacing single use vinyl. We feel that this is also a fantastic opportunity to showcase dynamic visuals with the opportunity for consistent updates and enhance the visitor experience here in Sacramento. Furthermore, the digital banners have the possibility of 5G capabilities and the opportunity to host free Wi-Fi that can benefit mobility, community members, and various city departments. The Downtown Partnership imagines street pole banners as a connective messaging tool that provides real-time updates to the public, such as critical events, 
emergency alerts, and community messaging to visitors and residents. We strongly support the consideration of allowing street light pole banners in the, in the city of Sacramento and encourage the committee to pursue this initiative. Thank you again for the opportunity to comment. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is PJ. Yeah, so one of the things, I, I like this idea, but one of the things that I would suggest in addition to uh, checking to make sure who, who actually is the um, type of company or type of corporation that would be supplying this, to ensure that there's no conflict, conflict of interest with uh, existing council members or other city staff, would also be to look into the um, internet of things. If you're not familiar with this concept, it's um, with an increasingly connected society. We have increasingly connected devices that have internet on internet capability on them. And because of that, they're more easily hacked. And so one of the things that you would wanna look into is to see how frequently something like this might need to be updated to ensure that it had the most recent updates with regards to security vulnerabilities. But then also regarding uh, the Internet of Things, making sure that they see how frequently these sorts of things could be hacked potentially, because I know I've seen a number of occasions, um, large scale billboards and that sort of things hacked and um, very offensive messaging, messaging put up and making sure that that sort of thing isn't a possibility here. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Uh, Jeff Aaron is our final speaker on this item. Yes. Hi, my name is Jeff Aaron. I am the government affairs director for the California Sign Association, a longtime resident of Sacramento as well. And I just wanted to comment that we as an organization um, are not aware of any technology that would support this. Although we love the idea of the city of Sacramento uh, investigating it further and the innovation that it presents would be remarkable. I also want to let you know that I checked with my colleagues uh, on the national level to see if there were any cities throughout the nation that were doing something like this, and they also were unable to identify any location for me to share with you today. Uh, nonetheless, um, it's a pr it presents a wonderful opportunity, especially given our community's um, innovation efforts, and we support staff on it. To the extent that we can be assistance, we have assistance. We look forward to doing that. Thank you. Try. I have no more speakers. Awesome. Thank you all. I know this um, item was come brought forward at the request of the vice mayor. So, vice mayor, why don't you start us off? Great. Thank. Thank you very much, um, Madam Chair. Here, first, I want to thank staff for putting this together. Uh, and um, you know, one. Uh, this, I do think, is a, a unique opportunity for us to look differently, look beyond uh, the banners, you know, while, you know, are important to, for recognizing when we have festivals, events, there's labor involved every time we have to go up there. And frankly, when we have bad events or storms or whatnot, they just look ratty, too. And so they just, if once they get worn down, it's a problem. So the maintenance issue is a, a good question, but I think we need to move beyond that and thinking about how this, this helps. Uh, areas, I think, like the, the downtown area specifically working with the downtown partnership, I see there's a strong benefit on Stockton Boulevard working with that business improvement district and also looking at how to create some lighting in areas that can be kind of dark and, and in the evening and particularly in the wintertime can create some more liveliness. So uh, there are questions and concerns that we have to take into effect uh, just, uh, just uh, I think, in the downtown area or in areas in, in my district where as we're adding residents, uh, making sure that the, the light impacts aren't affecting people who live in the area. But in commercial corridors or commercial areas, I think there's a strong benefit to this. Uh, and there's also gives us multiple applications when we have multiple events coming up. What 
you know, when we have to prioritize, say, one festival over another, you know, and, and making sure that we can find an easier way for us to, to uh, show the, the, the multitude of, of activities that we have. So in, uh, in my preference, I'm excited about moving forward in this. I think it shows that Sacramento is in the forefront of how we look at not only signage, how we look at um, also making sure we're, we're having other tools like access to uh, Wi-Fi or in, and the fact that they, these do have the, the 5G technology. I'm interested in also in some of these corridors to see if we can equip them with air quality monitors so that we can look at emissions and get testing on, on how our any changes in, say, as we move into more options to reduce our VMT, are we seeing those changes happening? So I think there's a lot of opportunities with uh, the, this, this type of technology. Um, my concern here, and, and, and maybe this is where I'd like to, uh, you know, uh, make a motion for staff to go forward, is, uh, is that this not turn into what's happened on the digital kiosk situation where we were looking to create more activity and foot traffic and then two years, three years later, we're still talking about thinking and researching it and whatnot. So I'd rather move and uh, look at option one uh, and figure out how do we use the uh, current authority. The revocable permits allow us, and if things are not going well, for the city to pull back and, and remove that authority. But I'd like to do uh, um, find a, uh, a process here or an ordinance that um, doesn't create more bureaucracy and that we work with, say, the PBIDs that are quasi you know, uh, they're quasi uh, a government entity also, uh, and they have a a responsibility and an invest and an interest in making sure that the public safety and health is is protected as well uh, for the city. So, I'd, for me, I'd like to be able to move in that direction in, in direction one, so that we're working with a trusted partner uh, in 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 the procurement and then the revocable. Um, uh, the revocable permit option rather than trying to go out and uh, what I don't want to see is go out and hire another consultant, spent a lot of money on consultant information, come back and, and get the same information that we've already received today. So uh, I'd like to figure out how we pilot that moving forward. Um, if we can, do, if there are more PVIDs interested, um, then maybe we use that tool uh, to be able to move forward. And not, I'm not saying we do a free-for-all for the city, but you know, right now the downtown partnership is interested in in going in this way, and I thank them for their leadership. Uh, but I do think this is a, a way to to figure out how do we create a little more activation and energy in some of our very dark places in in the city. So let me stop there, um, uh, Madam Chair, and uh, and uh, let my other colleagues move forward. But I'd like to. Um, uh, I think this is direction. If not, I'll, I'll make a motion to move with uh, item one and figure out how do we. Uh, move a little faster here. Yeah, this provide direction. It is. Thank you, Vice Mayor, um, Vice Chair Jennings. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll support the motion uh, just to keep the dialogue going on. But I, I have a, a, a bunch of questions about the the caller that said um, that there's no technology to support this, and just in my own research, I wasn't able to find any technology currently available. So I'm, I just need to know for myself, am I supporting an item that doesn't have the ability to exist in my lifetime? Uh, Ian, I'm, 
So I'm a, I'm a city planner. I'm, I'm not a technology expert, so I'll give you that caveat and say what our research has shown is that technology exists to have a digital display. And like my analogy of this being a television is that, you know, conceptually, um, we have an indication that it could feasibly um, exist and be mounted on a pole. Now, there are a lot of technical questions about how does it connect to power, how do you get the data to it, um, different features. It's novel, it's new, it's not been implemented to date, but I think the basic technology exists and what I'm hearing from at least Councilmember Gare is an interest to do more research into what is the device, what are the specifications. So, for example, we could share that weather information technology um, experts at the city and, and understand them, but we're just looking at input on, on the concept to move to the next step right. to help you understand more. And, and I'm all into that, you know, um, before there were computers, I was one of the original ones that said, I want a computer. So um, in this situation, there are a lot of questions. Um, we talked about technology. We talked about the infrastructure. Um, do the poles have the capability to have the always-on switch in order for these devices to be able to go on the pole? Um, we need to look at light, light pollution and, and how that affects the safety of those who are driving in the corridors of Stockton Boulevard and downtown, wherever they may end up going. Um, we need to look at device turnover. Uh, there's a whole lot of things we need to look at, and that's why I say I'm going to support the motion to move forward to look at these things so that we can determine whether or not it's cost effective, because we haven't talked about the infrastructure and the cost of being able to do something like that, and who picks up that cost. And so. I'm interested in moving forward because I think it would be great to have it in the city and, and all that it does as far as being able to ex speak to what Sacramento offers. And for people who are not walking around with a computer in their hand or an iPad in their hand, they can look on a digital board and actually see uh, what's happening here in the city of Sacramento. So I'm interested in moving forward, but I have a lot of questions about all the things that I've mentioned already. And so I won't re-mention those. All right, thank you, Vice Chair. Councilmember Kaplan. Thank you, Chair. Um, again, as a direction given to staff, I'm, I'm a little hesitant uh, because I think one of the things overarching we have to look at, um, I did my own research and I was only able to find this uh, working in China. Um, so I am all for the most effective uh, technology, but it has to be appropriate you know, cost effective. I'm very concerned about the light, the pollution, the safety, um, especially in our PBID areas, which are also tend to be somewhat distressed areas. So we're, are we adding more issues of pollution and how do you balance our, where we're looking at energy and climate change with this? And technology is ever changing. Um, I am also concerned in taking a step back like we talk about, and we're gonna discuss this later tonight, you know, council rules and procedures. We only have an infinite amount of staff and staff time. And where does this fall on the priority? You know, because I see a lot of stuff that we're doing having a, a higher priority. Not that this isn't, but I don't want staff to spend a lot of time. I think we should be prepared 
for looking at what's emerging technology. I am not supportive of allowing um, increased commercial advertising in this, but I am very concerned, as Council Member Jennings said, because the cost in infrastructure, you know, um, if it's requiring us to redo our, our polls, I, I'm pretty sure I'm a no. Um, if it's a whole digging up the sidewalks because we need infrastructure, I'm pretty sure budget-wise, that's not our priority. I'd rather spend it on housing and how do we address um, the unhoused. And then um, the liability and safety. The city is already going away from billboards. This is another form of a potential billboard on the streets where we already have distracted driving is a huge cause of accidents. Where are we, so, you know, for city attorney to weigh in, like does this increase the chance that um, the city is exposing itself to additional liability? So I'm open, but this is, I don't want this to be, unfortunately, I think you're on board and I'm with the downtown partnership that I think we should keep it, our eyes and ears open. And I would like to say more, if the downtown partnership has something specific they've seen and would like to try, that they then reach out to us and staff to start moving forward on something. In the meantime, I wanna save our staff for, we've got a difficult budget conversation, we've got housing conversations, we've got zoning, we have safety that I think take precedent and priority over this um, because we're gonna have to start balancing all of that. Great, um, I have a couple questions if that's okay, Vice Mayor, before we keep going in the direction here. Um, so, yeah, I guess to come on some of the points, because I just want to make sure I'm understanding the, the scope of what you're presenting, which is quite extensive, and I want to appreciate you in the report you included so that we had some time to, to ruminate on this a little bit. Um, this would be about installing something on existing poles, right? So in theory, like existing light poles where right. they exist already. Okay, so I appreciate that it might enhance lighting further, but it would largely be going where there is like a light pole already installed. We wouldn't be installing new poles with this. Yeah, okay, sorry. I mean, I, I'm, that, answer, that, I'm answering my question as I'm asking it. Sorry, I will not, oh, um, no, Kevin. That, that, I, could, I, but I, at the same time, it could, I mean, the partnership could identify a location that could be a new pole, but that's okay. I think um, we could talk you. at some point about what it's taken to get the light poles on K Street updated, and maybe um, we might rethink this as a strategy if um, it's been a year and counting, and that's okay. We'll keep working on it, and that's no diss on the public works. They're working hard, but it's a lot harder downtown than um, one would think. You mentioned the um, regulating of the content, and I know you've talked to me about this, but I think for the public, could you just expand a little bit on what staff's concerns are around what might be advertised on these billboards? Sure, happy to. Uh, so presently, there is a, a, a fabric banner permitting process. There, there's a form, if you'd like to install these in the community, that describes the process, including the content that is regulated on that. So currently, it is very restrictive. You're prohibited from general advertising for sale of a product, a company. There is a very limited provision for a sponsor of an event to include a logo. So if we were to move away from that sponsorship model into a general advertisement for a product, for a company promoting it as a form of advertising, then we get into content which is subject to the sign ordinance, such AKA a billboard. So billboards are specifically regulated because they do have commercial entities, products that they advertise for sale generally. Okay. So it's definitely opening up a whole new world here. I will say that um, I think as, as 
contrary to the sidewalk billboard discussion, which we've had, which I'm very interested in, right? Because this is something that's like fixed to the ground. We can do maybe electric vehicle charging for scooters and bikes. Like there's a lot of ways I could see that working. When, um, so I was outside during one of the storms in January. I'm not gonna, I don't like admitting that because it was a stupid decision on my part to be outside, but I was. Um, and it was New Year's Eve and the level of material that was flying, I mean, poles, trees, and I imagine one of these things up on one of these light poles and it freaks me out a little bit from just a safety concern. So I will voice that, but I just mostly wanna echo, I think what Councilmember Kaplan said in terms of her concerns and just say, I mean, it's a cool idea. I mean, wouldn't it be neat if, but I think in terms of the level of work that they're outlining this might entail, this makes me really nervous. And so I wonder if maybe there's an interim step we could take here as like, before we start ever thinking about updating legal analysis and starting to write code, can we just do a little bit more feasibility work maybe with the downtown partnership and others to say, okay, what could this look like? How do we see this working so that we can get a better idea of exactly what we're signing up for? Because it is, I'm hearing what you're saying in terms of like one of the chief complaints that I hear, a major complaint downtown, is folks tapping into light poles for power. And so they're outside of there. And that's something that I know Dave and I in lighting work a lot on to secure the light poles so people don't tap into them for power. I mean, there's just a whole myriad of ways that I worry that this might exacerbate some challenges, specifically downtown, putting my D4 hat on, but citywide, I just want to echo what Councilmember Kaplan said, that I'm a little worried this is a huge, huge undertaking, and I'm not totally sure I think this is a priority at this time, especially given that there's other items, like you mentioned, that we're, we want to move on and want to get done. So I'm curious, um, Vice Mayor, what you think about maybe an interim step before we do the full option one here, and, and maybe we can just have a little more discussion and maybe invite Downtown Partnership if they have a presentation they want to give us or yeah, well, evidence. You, yeah, I, and, and again, I think, uh, you know, this has been a conversation for, for about a year, so it's not a, it's not a new, uh, it's not a new endeavor or new idea. Um, what, uh, what I, what in my direction, where I was moving for, again, it was, let's go with the downtown partnership, the, let's figure out how it works in that specific case. Um, and we already have an ordinance in place. The question is, is, you know, what changes need to happen in that ordinance, that revocable permit, rather than creating a new one. Uh, and, and, uh, and again, this isn't, uh, this isn't, we're not voting on an ordinance today. We're, we're asking, and, and that's why I said, let's make sure we focus, work with the downtown partnership and have them come back with us to something that is actually, you know, maybe if, if, it's, if they come back to us and they're like, hey, this is what it's gonna take, then we make that decision of like, you know what, maybe we don't move forward. But if, if they have that ability, but that's why I think it's important that we do this with the PBID uh, and not just kind of a general change to the, uh, the, uh, the other code section, chap chapter 15 of our codes. This is this stays within the the first code section of something we already have authority to. All right, Councilmember Kaplan, I see you're up. Yeah, so I just want to piggyback on what Councilmember Gare is saying because I also said this that I think it's I don't want us to direct staff right now to do anything further. I want that it's we are asking staff that if the downtown partnership comes to staff with ideas and the bigger scope that we, staff bring it back to us for discussion. Um, but I don't want staff and our attorney to go the deep dive because we need to understand more what's the scope. And if the downtown partnership thinks this could be done, then I would like to see them do the work of what it would look like potentially downtown. And I would like this to be narrowly focused. Like you talked about uh, Vice Mayor Guerra. I don't think this is something like I can tell you D1 would probably not be enthralled 
to have additional billboards or lights um, out there, but let's let's put this back. If this is what the downtown partnership wants, and the only thing I was able to find was in China, why don't they come into our city staff and say this is what it would take, so that city staff then has that basis without them going off and doing all of this research. Yeah, I appreciate the clarification, and I think um, maybe a path forward here to suggest and. Um, Vice Mayor, I would definitely work with you on this, is maybe we could set up a follow-up meeting with the downtown partnership and staff and when they're ready. Because I do think the downtown partnership coming up more specifically with what they have in mind, I to me, I'm already thinking like, where exactly are you thinking of doing this? Because that makes a big difference downtown. Um, like if you're talking K Street and we just spent the last two years trying to get those street lights fixed, Oh, I'm going <laughs> to, uh, personally, I'm just going to speak on behalf of Public Works and Spirit, since Ryan isn't here, that that would be a big deal for us. Um, and in downtown, I'll just speak for my district more broadly, our priority is actually just more streetlights, period, because there are a lot of gaps in our community where we don't have any streetlights in the central city. That has been a huge concern for a lot of my neighbors. So if it came between this and that, I can already tell you what my district would vote for as well. But yeah, maybe this is our next step, as we will... You and I will sit down with the downtown partnership and staff when the downtown partnership is ready. I know they're watching this, but we can also, Kevin, if you would help us communicate that back to them and talk more specifically before we bring a little bit more of a specific conversation back. Because I also agree with you, Vice Chair, where it's like, it could be cool. Like, I, I like cool technology. I like getting the new thing. You know, maybe it's really great, and maybe it's um, something that we decide, you know what, this is really cool for another time. Um, but more detail will help with that. Vice Chair, I see you raised your hand as well. Go ahead. Yeah. Just very quickly, quickly to kind of put an end to it, because I, I agree with where we're going to. Um, but the situation that you have with the polls on K Street um, kind of lead to the point that I want to make about a potential um, test site mm -hmm. where you can take a small area of downtown and you can test this out to find out the cost to infrastructure, the cost of bringing technology, um, the the pollution issue that we spoke to, um, the technology support that will be needed. You could take a smaller area and use it as a test site. I, I worry a little bit about putting this on the downtown partnership because I don't know their capacity for taking on these kind of projects. And I don't want to understate what that is or is not. But um, that would lead the city to stay in it, um, even on a test site standpoint, if they're limited in capacity. Um, so it would give us a test model. It would give us information that we don't have today as far as cost is concerned. And uh, I think it could be a, a good next step before we take a deeper dive. I want to appreciate that, but also just to say that downtown partnership, if they were going to be the applicant for this, would need to find a vendor and do the work anyway. So I guess what I'm suggesting is let's just have one more discussion before we start sure. moving forward. Because it's possible that we'll do a bunch of work and then they'll come back with pricing from a vendor in another country and be like, whoa, never mind. <laughs> like there's nobody's gonna pay for this. So I'll just let's just have one more conversation before we get more specific and drill in. Cause like I said, it could be cool. It could be really cool. Um and it could end up being that we're just like, you know what, in the end, this just isn't our priority right now, which is also okay. Um so we'll just do one more talk. And then we'll bring it back. Yep. Okay. Works for me. Awesome. And this oh. is direction, yes. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate your time. Thank you, team. All right, moving on to another very exciting agenda item here. Item five, discussion of taxes and other options to incentivize development or improvement of vacant parcels and buildings. I see Greta has come to the podium. Welcome. Good afternoon, Chair. <clears throat> um, 
staff, if you'll pull up the PowerPoint. Ethan, if Ethan, if will bring up the PowerPoint, thank you. I guess while we're waiting for that, I'll just do some introductory comments and give Greta some time um, and staff to get the slide deck up. So I wanna provide some additional context to this item because this conversation's been going on for quite a while and I wanna really thank Greta and Greg and Matt and the entire planning team for all the thought and work they've done in on this. This was actually initially direction in our housing element policy um, last year, which was let's look at a potential tool and what that might mean for the city. Um, staff has been doing a lot of great research on what's been happening in other cities, which I will be on the slides when they are up, but I do wanna say that I think what they've come back with is actually a whole myriad of options, some of which are residential, some of which are not, and, and really, hopefully will provide the type of fodder for a really robust discussion here today, and maybe even some direction about some ideas we'd like to see move forward, but I hope that this is part of a longer conversation just about creative tools, new ideas, and really, again, Greta, I wanna thank you and the team for all the work you put into this research project, so. I don't see the slides yet, so. Um, the Pure House staff has the slides. Do you know where they were sent? They were sent to um, Agenda and to Efrain and um, Alexis. They? Yes. And yesterday, a different version. But do we wanna maybe just start talking through the content? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, um, good afternoon, uh, Chair Valenzuela and members of the Law and Legislation Committee. My name is Greta Seuss, I'm an associate planner in uh, the planning division. And today um, we're presenting a discussion item for the commission's committee's input and feedback related to the topic of taxes and other incentives to, uh, to incentivize development or improvement of vacant parcels and buildings. Today's the first time that this topic is being presented to the council for discussion. And staff will present a high level research on this topic and is seeking further direction from the committee on next steps. The topic of vacant parcels and properties has been of interest in recent years due to concerns of blight, blighted vacant parcels, um, empty buildings and vacant storefronts, and a lack of development on vacant parcels over prolonged periods of time. Exploring ways to incentivize development or activation of vacant parcels and properties um, can support infill development, strengthen neighborhoods and commercial corridors, and increase economic vibrancy of the city. Currently, there are approximately 3,600 privately owned vacant parcels that exist in the city of Sacramento. The city has already taken several steps to incentivize development of vacant properties. The vacant lot program was established in 2018 to prevent blight and ensure proper maintenance of vacant properties. The vacant lot program requires property owners to register their vacant undeveloped property annually and pay an annual program fee of $65 and designate a local contact representative. Peter Lemos will be presenting potential changes to this program in the next agenda item. In September of 2022, the city also launched an online housing development toolkit that provides a one-stop resource for information on incentives, processes, and procedures to develop housing and activate vacant lots. Information about this resource is being mailed to vacant lot registrants this May. Some of the incentives highlighted on the Housing Development Toolkit website include how to reduce project costs, how to gain faster approvals, and how to build more units or tailor a project to a specific site. 
There is an in-depth step-by-step process on how to develop housing, and it also how highlights other options for vacant properties, such as selling or do donating the property, using it for urban agriculture, or hosting pop-up events. The Vacant Lot Registration Program and Housing Development Toolkit are good ways for the city to establish connections with and provide resources for owners of vacant property. Another way to encourage development of activation of, va of vacant lots would be the application of a tax on these properties. Many jurisdictions in California are now implementing or considering various forms of special taxes on vacant properties and or buildings. A summary of these can be found in attachment two, summary table of options implemented or considered in other jurisdictions. These include variations of taxes on vacant parcels, vacant buildings, vacant storefronts or commercial properties, and or vacant residential buildings or units. So a vacant parcel tax would apply to un vacant undeveloped parcels. A vacant building tax would apply to vacant buildings either commercial and or residential where the entire building must be vacant. A vacant commercial property tax would apply just to commercial vacancies such as vacant storefronts. And vacant residential unit tax would apply to individual vacant residential units. There are many ways to allow for flexibility in the crafting of such a tax for the needs of our city. One way to do this is through the creation of exemptions of, um, of, as part of a proposed measure. Um, as shown in attachment two, each of the adopted measures includes an array of exemptions from the tax. The listed um, the exa examples would be uh, activation of the property, use for urban agriculture, very low income and low, in low income senior property owners, nonprofits, having an active planning or building permit application, the period during which maintenance or leasing is occurring, the period that units are the uh, owner's principal residence or having the unit leased for occupancy. In terms of potential revenues, um, listed here are tax revenue examples. The city of Oakland, which is 78 square miles, has a, an annual tax rate of six thousand for residential, non-residential, and undeveloped properties, and three thousand for condos, duplexes, and townhomes. This applies to properties that is not in use for more than 50 days in the calendar year. Revenues for 2019, 2020, and 2021 have been 6.4 million, 8 million, and 6.4 million respectively, with about a quarter unpaid in 2019 and 2020 and the second installment of which is due in April 2023 for the 2022 calendar year. The city of Berkeley is in is 17 square miles in comparison to the city, which is about 105 square miles. Um, they apply a tax to residential units that are vacant for more than 182 days per year. This annual tax rate is 3,000 for duplexes, condos, single family homes and townhomes in the first year and 6,000 in subsequent years. And for all other residential units, it's 6,000 for the first year and 12,000 for subsequent years. And for the city of Berkeley, it is project projected that the tax will produce 3.9 to 5.9 million in revenues per year. Common uses of the revenues from these taxes include provisions of services for houseless individuals, affordable housing gap financing, small business assistance, and program administration. 
While commonalities exist among the listed existing and proposed tax, each tax listed varies in the tax amount, application of the tax, types of exemptions, and identified use of revenues. These are tailored to the unique goals and objectives of those jurisdictions. Before crafting an ordinance for voter approval, the city must confer with various departments, define its goals and objectives, and conduct outreach. Financial analysis and research needs to be conducted, and voter approval is required. Today is an initial discussion of this topic, and staff is seeking direction from the committee on which of any of the vacancy tax options that committee would like for staff to conduct additional research and initiate coordination on with other divisions and departments as needed. And that concludes my presentation. Thank you, Greta. There is a lot there, um, so I'm sure the committee will weigh in. I think for me, what's most exciting about this is daydreaming about what the exceptions could be. You know, one idea that came up on the staff call, I think it was Danielle Foster, who's no longer with the city, said, well, what if storefronts were exempt if they displayed a local artist's work, right? I mean, we could really get creative about what community purpose could be met through these different programs as we explore them. And um, I just really want to thank you again and the team for your work on this and sort of opening the door to a broader conversation. So with that, um, I think it's Vice Mayor Guerra who has your hand raised if you would like to. Oh, oh sorry. Yes. Let's wait for public comment. Thank you. Um, let's see if anybody has comment from the public. Yes, I do have, I do have Jack Blattner in chambers and then I have about seven people online. Uh, good afternoon, council members. I'm Jack Blattner with the Sacramento Metro Chamber, representing over 600 metro businesses in the region. Um, we have two thoughts uh, on this item today. Uh, the first is we are interested in seeing the city take steps to address commercial vacancy. Um, you know, we recognize that it's a big problem, uh, especially in the center city, and in particular that every vacant storefront is a wasted opportunity for business. Um, on the other hand, we do not understand looking at a residential vacancy tax in Sacramento. You know, we're not Santa Cruz or San Francisco. According to CoStar data, the residential vacancy rate in the city has been between four and 6% over the last year, which is, um, if anything, on the low end of sort of the healthy equilibrium range. So in our opinion, a residential vacancy tax seems a bit like a solution in search of a problem. And uh, we do hope that there is no residential tax uh, included in whatever comes through this committee or council. So thank you for your consideration. Our next speaker is Margo Rinaldo. Margo, it's your turn to present to the commission. Yeah, hi. Um, I would just like to mention that uh, I think it's pretty exciting that we're considering this in Sacramento. Um, personally, I live downtown and I've lived across a vacant building that spans like an entire block uh, for the last two years. And it's pretty frustrating to see that considering like this is such precious space down here and it could be used for so many other purposes, even within that two years that it was just sitting there. We could have been, you know, collecting some taxes on it to help fund programs that we desperately need. Um, but I am also just curious to see what vacancy rates in Sacramento look like across uh, different kinds of housing, also commercial real estate, 
um, you know, single unit, uh, multifamily unit housing. Um, and, in, and to that point, uh, I also remember reading a Sacramento News and Review article a while back that stated that one of the largest landlords um, and owners in Sacramento of housing is Blackstone. And so I think, again, this is another need for a vacancy tax um, on residential properties, honestly, because we know that we have so many large, uh, you know, you know, big investors in housing here in Sacramento that may not even be local to us. So I think that's like, a, you know, a really uh, important thing about this. So I think that um, some of the comments online were speaking that to the point that real estate taxes will not uh, end the housing shortage. And I think that's right. Um, and you're almost getting to the correct point there, which is that uh, having public ownership of the infrastructure it takes to build and maintain housing uh, will take it from the domain of a commodity uh, to what it needs to be, which is a human right. So uh, in the meantime, a vacancy tax is a step in the right direction, and it will allow our city to fund some of the much needed services and programs uh, that in the long run will improve our abilities to address this crisis. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker is Daniel Savala. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Daniel Savala, the executive director of the El Paso Boulevard Partnership. Uh, I want to just kind of stay focused on the commercial corridor aspect. And you know, I've showed up at council and I've written several emails, uh, most recently of, of a devastating fire on Del Paso Boulevard. We have vacant buildings that have been vacant for upwards of 10 years uh, with zero to no penalty, with mismatched paint, broken windows, damaged awnings, and whatever's on the books today doesn't seem to be enough. And so there's no consequence to a building owner to leave his or her property um, in, in a blighted state uh, and used for, for all the wrong reasons. But I also recognize that as the director of the Business Improvement District, our revenue is by and large paid for by property owners. And it's a small minority of property owners who are not doing their part, so to speak, is not do, going the extra step and in, in, in keeping their buildings tight. Um, but I say that to also recognize that when you, how you use this fund, whether it be a fee or a, a tax, Recognize that on places like Del Paso Boulevard, that's within the transit overlay or the transit zone, there are several issues um, that are cost prohibitive to occupancy, a change of occupancy or change of use for a lot of these old industrial buildings or warehouses. And, and so I also want to have some sympathy for those. And, and when you craft an ordinance, you take those things into consideration and you find a way to take this fund and perhaps use those to recognize that many of these buildings are outdated they need a significant amount of, of rehab for, for occupancy for the types that we want, which include housing and, and commercial uses. So as a lifelong Sacramento and as your director for the El Paso Boulevard, I am 100% on board. I'm thankful that you guys are taking this up today, and I, I urge you guys to um, let code enforcement do their thing, and, and let's put some teeth in what we have. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Jeff Short. <coughs> Good afternoon, council members. Jeff Short with the North State Building Industry Association. As you know, we represent the overwhelming majority of home builders and residential developers in the greater Sacramento area. Uh, we sent a letter in just before this meeting, but I wanted to highlight just a few of our key points. Um, first of all, we see ourselves as a partner with the city in achieving our mutual goal of supporting new infill housing and creating uh, new housing options for middle and working class families. Uh, we, for that reason, we oppose a residential vacancy tax as we believe it will disincentivize 
housing investment in the city. And we'd encourage uh, you and your staff to continue working with us, uh, with our partner associations in this space and with our members uh, to help find, uh, to, to help identify where the problem areas are in developing new housing and finding ways to incentivize the kind of housing that we need. Thank you for your time and attention. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker is PJ. Yeah, I would just like to say I fully support a vacancy tax. Um, one of the huge issues that I've seen with Midtown and at Sacramento more broadly is that a number of um, a number of properties just sit vacant with nothing on them. A lot of the time, um, waiting for uh, speculators to basically hold hold their property for as long as possible to get the most amount of money out of it. And in the meantime, there's no real risk for them because any um, sort of rental or rent that they lose is offset by the tax burden that they can decrease through a, through claiming a loss in income due to the no, no renting of the property. And that just doesn't make sense because what it ends up doing is it ends up harming our communities because these spaces go undeveloped for long periods of time. And what we end up having is this blight in addition to the fact that we don't have the um, ad added housing that we need desperately for this area. And um, I would push back only on the one person who said five to 6% isn't that much um, for an area in reality, when we're several hundred thousand units behind where we should be, uh, every unit can is desperately important. Um, I can bring up multiple examples in my own neighborhood, um, including one directly across the alley from me that is set that has four units in it and has sat vacant for nine years. I moved in two years ago after they had had some fire damage. And at that time, it was pretty much fully put back together and it sat for another seven years unrented. And these properties occur all over the city. And one of the reasons why they aren't in such a rush to rent them out is because they know they can write off the loss against their taxes and there's no real harm. So what we have to do is we have to actually have it cost them because in the end, what it is costing is our communities. And we need to ensure that our communities have safe places to live, have the, the needed places to live, and that these properties don't just sit unused for years, if not decades. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker is Louis Morante. Hi, council members. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak to you today. My name is Louis Morante. I'm a resident of Midtown District 4. Uh, and by day, I am an affordable housing policy advocate with the Bay Area Council, which represents 300 of the Bay Area's largest employers, uh, including developers, nonprofit developers, and everybody in between. Um, I wanted to call today um, with some support for some of the things on this list, um, but with a clear objection to uh, the idea that we would do uh, residential vacancy taxes as a you know part of the, the the policy suite here. I think there's a lot we can and should be doing in Sacramento to make it cheaper and more attractive to be building on vacant land, um, but taxing that vacant land isn't going to be a highly motivating thing for most of the people who hold that land. Uh, bigger things like impact fees or things affecting residential pro project feasibility are much bigger uh, uh, motivations for them to actually move on building homes. And uh, in places like uh, uh, Berkeley and, and, and San Francisco, which have vacancy taxes, those vacancy taxes are largely hitting homes that are not actually considered or, or what many people would consider vacant. Um, the census does a point in time count of uh, wet, uh, uh, of, of that particular moment, and if the if the home is not occupied at that particular moment, that home is considered vacant, even if it's occupied for the rest of the year. 
Um, that's so. So the idea that Midtown has a forty-five percent vacancy rate is based on on that definition, not on the definition that the tax would use. Um, overall, I, I heavily encourage the city council to look at other non-tax uh, ways of driving investment into downtown because that tax is is very likely to be counterproductive. We should actually focus on ways to increase vacancy because increased vacancies is probably causal, but definitely correlated with much lower rates of homelessness in cities across California. Thanks for your time. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker is Jared. Hi, thank you for your time. Um, I am pretty excited about the idea of taxing, creating a tax for these vacant lots and um, buildings. I think Sacramento is sort of, in my mind, famous for having a lot of long-term vacancies. And I think that the exemptions should be so that people who are just in a tight spot and can't get it together aren't going to be penalized and pushed further into some form of poverty. Um, but yeah, I'd like to second what someone said earlier. I think it was Margot that a lot of these um, buildings are invest like outside of Sacramento investments. And so this is actually a way for the people of Sacramento to protect their own resources and create more wealth to maintain, like to stay inside the city. I'm excited for the ways that we could create more exemptions. Um, and I'd like to see this program work alongside other programs to help homelessness, like that this program names homelessness as something that they want to address. I think a great exemption for like an empty lot would be looking at creating some some more safe grounds and things that provide um, like immediate safety for people who are the most vulnerable in our communities. Um, so I think exemptions as well as even like compensations for using empty lots. Um, I've seen homeless camp encampments being swept and then people are camping wherever they can find safe space or a place to set up their tent. And they're literally like along the fence of a fenced off parking lot. And I so often just want to like tear down the fence. I don't, but I'm just like, why can't they just be there? You know, where it's like, they're just on the sidewalk now, but they could be off the sidewalk and in a safer place and more comfortable. Um, and so, yeah, developing safe grounds. And, you know, we have done that in the city before, so I think it could be done again. So I'd love to see that added as a potential to these plans. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Erin Teague is our final speaker on this item. Uh, good afternoon, Chair Valenzuela and committee members. Erin Teague on behalf of the Sacramento Association of Realtors. Uh, today, we respectfully request that the residential vacancy tax be removed from today's discussion. Uh, currently, a few people have mentioned that the data in Sacramento, the vacancy rate is currently at 6%, which while this is up from the 1.8% we previously saw, Numbers show us that um, there's available housing in the market. Uh, to put this number in context, a healthy vacancy rate is considered between five and 8%. This allows for availability for renters to move and find housing as, it, as their needs shift. On the other hand, a low vacancy rate can drive up demand and rental costs, which puts pressure on the market and reduces availability for those searching of housing. I think we saw some of this when uh, during COVID when the rental prices spiked dramatically because a lot of people were moving to Sacramento. Uh, now we're still recovering from that experience and the rental prices are starting to come down as this vacancy number is going up to what is considered a stable range. While we understand that Sacramento and throughout the state there's a demand for more housing, currently Sacramento would not be considered as having a residential vacancy problem. 
Our members are often mom and pop housing providers that use rental income as a retirement investment. So withholding a unit or home from the market is not uh, financially viable for them. We know that when local jurisdictions began, begin adding additional restrictions to rental properties that it deters development, therefore making the current housing market even more impacted. Therefore, we wanna be part of the conversation that works together to find solutions for blighted, unkept vacant properties, which we know have been a challenge for certain parts of the city. We hope that as this policy is discussed, its focus is specifically on ways to identify the problem properties and looks to ways to help spur development. Uh, we appreciate your time today. Thank you. All right, thank you, Madam Clerk. Thank you, everybody who called in. Um, I believe I was starting with Vice Mayor Guerra, and then we'll go around the horn here and have some discussion. Well, thank you, uh, Madam Chair. First, uh, you know, let me let me start by thanking our city staff uh, who've been working on this uh, issue of uh, blighted properties, vacant lots, um, for quite some time. And one of the one of the the reasons when I ran for council in 2015 was just the sheer number of areas, you know, in corridors like Stockton Boulevard and South Sacramento. Downtown has a few vacant lots, but still a lot of blighted buildings, but the, how, how impactful and how dramatically they were for, um, for uh, the community living around them and the business owners also impacting them. And so, you know, even back then when we first started this conversation, we had no idea how many lots, vacant lots, there even were in the city. Um, we moved forward and crafted an ordinance in 2018, and and just as you know, we had the previous discussion, we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into, and we met, uh, drafted that first ordinance that identified that we had about 3,600 vacant lots in our city, and we started a registry program to be able to get to that point and to be able to even have conversations with the property owners because. In many cases, many of us in our neighborhoods knew these problem properties were there, but we didn't even know who the property owner was. Um, so that, uh, being able to do that, I think got us to about, I think now we're at 2,800 um, registered property owners. We still have a ways to go to get everybody registered. Uh, and we would hope that our, our um, the, that those folks in the, in the business community encourage their, their members to ensure that they're, they're uh, registering with the vacant lot ordinance. We also, made some mistakes there. Like we, we tried to make the policy simple and not overcomplicate it, but we also found out that, you know, community gardens, um, you know, uh, folks who had bought parcels of land so that they could build out and have housing for their family. Uh, many areas of our city actually were redlined and where they couldn't buy in certain parts of the city. So they bought larger parcels so that they could slowly build housing in that area. And then as their kids decided to leave Sacramento or do something different, those parcels became adjacent spaces. So we had to make exemptions for that to make sure that, uh, and, and clear up the fact that these weren't the people we were, uh, we were targeting. We weren't targeting folks who wanted to create a community garden. We weren't looking at uh, family-owned lots that were adjacent to a property that maybe we're using them now to, to have their own little orchard and uh, as well. Uh, and, and we fixed that in 2002 and created some exemptions there. Uh, and so I think we've, we started moving forward in that process. Now uh, we have identified the nuisance lots and where there are more to go. Uh, but uh, that, that lies the question here in, um, is, 
you know, when we're having this discussion, because this question is a, is a big question uh, of what the committee is asked to do. And so really, I have, what I'm hearing from the staff in this is what's the objective? What are, what are we trying to accomplish here? Um, what I'd like to see is to focus on what continues to be a problem, and our next item, I think, uh, adds to that point. Um, and, uh, and yes, it's, we have a, a challenge with some of these property owners, many who haven't registered who live from out of town, and some of the building owners who uh, carry a loss in that. Now, to get to this point, it took a lot of you know, uh, staff time and staff hours to get here, and I think we've built up on that. And so if I'm looking at, at the direction here and on where are we at and where we can be most effective, because I still feel that by and large the biggest problem we have is with these vacant lots and underutilized land. It continues to be issues of fire and weed abatement. The city code still says until you get a foot uh, high grass is when we, when we consider that a nuisance. Uh, and who knows, maybe that might consider my lawn at some points of the year. But, um, but the point here is, uh, is I think that uh, if we're looking at where, our, our, where we should focus and make this effort is looking at those vacant lots. Uh, and then uh, and looking, and, and to me, I, I also, I'm very concerned about how this vacancy tax would work because one of the challenges when I have worked to try to get someone to come in and invest uh, and build and use that vacant lot, sometimes there were liens on that property. And, and when some of the investors would say, well, I have options to choose from, they're not just in one area of the city, and they're not just in one council district, and they're not in just in the city of Sacramento. They have other jurisdictions to consider of where they want to put their capital. So I, I do have some concerns about the impact, uh, and maybe this is my first question here to staff is, is um, you know as we start say taxing a property, you know how um, you know at some point we're going to put a lien on that property and how it makes does that make it even more challenging um, to be able to repurpose or sell um, you know the that property for future investment because at the end of the day I think what we're trying to at least what I see is important is how do we maximize underutilized properties that are places for illegal dumping for fire hazard and that the, that overall uh, reduce the, the the value in the community. So let me let me stop there and, and ask that question first. Yeah, that's a great question, Vice Mayor. Um, you know, the the tax I think would um, not. I think that the goal that is similar to the vacant lot program is not to get to that point of um, putting a lien on the property. But um, um, yeah, I think the direction today that we're trying to get is you know, think the things that you were listing, um, you know, focusing on vacant lots. Um, but I'm not sure about the lien question. We can definitely look more into that as a follow-up. Yeah, and, and if you could, I think I, I would ask, oh, sorry, yes. Uh, good afternoon, Matt Hurdle, Long Range Planning Manager. I would say, you know, what we'd love for today, we'll take notes on a lot of the questions and things you'd like for us to research and get direction on that. This is a very initial step, very high level. So questions about how this would impact properties, uh, things like liens haven't been researched yet. We'd love to work with our department's uh, attorneys and think about how that could be structured if we get that direction. No, thank you. And I appreciate uh, staff's point in this. And, and so if I'm going to say where, where do we need to focus on, I think before we start going and trying to grasp everything, I'd like to, I'd like to narrow in um, on the vacant lot uh, aspect of it. I think the vacant building, um, I have that issue in my council district, uh, but not to the extent of vacant lots. So I'm speaking here as, 
as council member for district six and and i think focusing on that is important i think there's still a lot of questions particularly some from what i've seen some legal questions about a residency vacancy tax and actually how we would implement that um, and so if you know with with the mighty staff that's also working on the general plan right now which I appreciate that um, I think if if there's a direction where I'm going here uh, you know and uh, I'll wait to hear what my colleagues say but I'd, I'd like to say I'd like to direct staff to focus on the vacant lot program and see if if this is a tool that assists that um, the, and and you know before we even move on to vacant buildings should we not have a registry um, similar so we actually know the scope because we don't even know the scope of vacant buildings uh, commercial buildings um, the exceptions I would say that I think we should look at what we did in the vacant lot programs as, as exceptions also um, you know if there is going to be a tax I wouldn't want to go back and and all of a sudden now those same family members who bought those adjacent lots are now getting taxed for that um, that that space that they have uh, or anybody who's trying to build a community garden I mean I think that's another one where I wouldn't want to tax someone who's trying to provide and many of the community gardens are, are working with uh, folks who uh, are have food insecurity um, and uh, and then and then definitely I think uh, you know for now definitely move away and uh, and uh, from the residential vacancy tax and focus on the commercial side of it um, there are uh, I think in particularly parts of my district and I'd like to find out uh, there's one particular property uh, like I know on Lemon Hill and and um, uh, in Logan Street and I don't know if that if uh, if that is zone C2 or if it's just pure residential but there are some of these residential zoned areas that that have become blighted and maybe we look at those but I think for the most part I want to focus on these commercial lots that consistently are the problem so let me stop there madam chair all right I appreciate the comments and questions councilmember Kaplan thank you chair and and vice mayor I think this is a really good conversation that's happening throughout the state for us to look at um, a couple things that I'm interested in because not only does this bring up other things I looked at our program in and of itself and then I looked at what other cities were doing on our vacant lot program um, we I would like to suggest that it comes back for discussion that the Actually, item six so I want to make sure we, fee oh yeah so that's gonna is, be item six okay all right so, so that we just the proposed yeah. fee but then also adding in that we do a vacant um, building program because if it's vacant lot we're, we're looking at blight and addressing blight and redevelopment we can only know when we have data so for me looking at what we're doing I want to know what does the data say is a problem and what are we like suggesting is going to solve that and what data do we have that says it's solved so I can tell you right now I'm not interested in the city jumping in the middle of uh, legal discussions that are ongoing. Um, I think other cities who have taken the leap and that are in the middle of a lawsuit, uh, let's let that uh, pan itself out. So I'm, I don't think it's a good use of our time to discuss an empty homes tax right now because I don't have data to also say that this is a problem that Sacramento really needs to move forward on. If we find that it's a problem, I'm open to further discussion, but right now because there is a lawsuit over San Francisco and I haven't been shown that our vacant residential is a problem. However, I do want to add that caveat. If it is a vacant home that is considered within code a nuisance, I think, I think as that adds into six, 
I would like to, to dig in um, more on that, but I am open um, looking at potentially what a vacant parcel tax and a vacant building tax would look like, um, knowing that you know there would be those, those exemptions, what would it take, what would it look like, um, with our goals, I'd like to keep our goals fairly broad um, so that we have as much discretion as possible while ta uh, tailoring it a little bit, that we would use any revenues for affordable housing, um, for our unhoused, but also for our small local businesses. Because if we're looking at vacant buildings, vacant storefronts, how do we support our small local businesses? Because we already know everything's turning online. So how do we make it viable for um, what we know is when we have our local families invest, that they have the ability to make that, that viable. Um, so I am open to those further discussions in light of how does it fit with everything that we're else we're doing right now. But I think for me, addressing the issues because D1 and D2 connect, um, there are a lot of vacant blighted buildings and D2 that are a nuisance that um, I hope we can really take a strong look at how we do things in item six that I'm passionate about. But I, I, I don't think it's worth our time to touch the empty homes tax at this time. All right, thanks, Councilmember. Vice Chair, do you have anything you'd like to add? Um. I probably have more to add than I'm, I'm willing to do so right now. Um, I, we had a great conversation yesterday, and I appreciate staff for having the conversation uh, with us. Um, I'm very much interested in the 3,600 privately owned lots of vacant units, not just lots, but just vacant units, whether they be commercial or residential. I'm very much interested in seeing a breakdown by district where they are. Um, and how long have they been vacant? And how long have they been in disrepair um, in the state that they're in? Uh, because I, I do believe as elected officials, we should be involved in helping to understand the state of why it's in that condition and, and what can be done to change that. Um, and, and so, you know, I have not done that. And, and so I'm, I'm looking in the mirror to say that given the information uh, to be able to make calls to find out what is the plan for the property would be something that my office would be willing to do with the help of the PBIDs and others that we have in the community that are partners in helping us. Um, and, and, and I want to start there because I, I find it very difficult to justify a tax on a building or property to spur utilization or development. I, I just find that hard to do. Um, if that's our goal, if we're trying to, to spur utilization and development, um, putting a tax on top of that, uh, and it'd be good to know um, if that tax could be utilized to help um, with the disrepair. But to have more of a focus on the state of repair, being able to maintain buildings in a way that would not be a blight in the community but would be an asset in the community. Um, is something that I'm very interested in, is developing some type of program that be more of a state of repair to terminate the blighted state. 
um, and other non-tax ways to encourage development. Um, and so I'm torn between what we're trying to do and what other cities have done and the amount of money that they brought in that adds to the general fund that could be used for a lot of different purposes. I'm torn between that, but at the same time, I'm torn between the state of the business owner or individual owner who owns the lot, who owns the building, and is not able to, to move on it at this time, but is trying to do something to make it better for future generations or make it better for his generation or her generation. So I'm, I'm kind of torn between a lot of different states as a, as a uh, person who focuses and tries to do everything he can to encourage business development. So I'm torn, but I do need more information as far as um, that spreadsheet that we talked about on districts and where properties are in the districts so that I can be a part of the solution um, and help in that way. I was impacted by the property liens and, and what could happen as far as uh, the impact on taxing properties that could also end up being liens could be prohibitive as far as uh, owners being able to sell those buildings in the future. Um, so I appreciate that part of the conversation that you had, uh, Vice Mayor. Um, and I'm also trying to understand what are we trying to solve? Um, I'm just really trying to make sure I understand that. And I think I understand it is that we want to not have blighted properties. We don't want to have vacant lots. We'd rather have more housing and more opportunity for business development. I think that's what it is, but I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page as far as what our goals are as it relates to what we're trying to solve, what are we trying, what are our objectives. So I think I've said everything that uh, I wanted to say. Same thing I said yesterday. Am I consistent? Good, good. Appreciate that. Um, but again, I want to thank the staff for the work that they've done in this whole matter. Um, and uh, I still want to continue to take a look at the best practices in the cities of Oakland and Berkeley. Is it Oakland and Berkeley that we looked at? Yeah, and, and, and look at how the dollars that they're bringing in, how they're able to utilize those dollars to spur further business investment. Uh, and if that's what they're using it for, or is it just going into the general fund to do whatever? Those are great questions, Vice Chair. I appreciate the framing. And I think so much of this comes down to how we design a program, right? So I used the storefronts example because that's an issue in my district. You know, people feel less comfortable if they're walking down a K Street that doesn't have anything in the windows versus if it's activated. So something like saying, hey, we might charge you this tax, but here's this list of things you could do that would activate the space. And why well, I've been so enamored with Danielle's idea of, put a local artist work up there, you know, put a QR code in the window that says, here's how you learn about them. Something that's attainable, but achieves a goal um, that we could start. And we can look at these in silos, right? Because I'm hearing a lot of interest in vacant properties and vacant lots, which we do have those in the central city, some very big notable ones, actually. And I would love to talk about how we move those more into production. I know we're going to move into item six, where we'll talk a little more about what we're doing already. But also when it comes to residential units, I know this is... Um, it's a tough conversation that people don't really like to have. And so I want to put 
just some numbers that our team has been looking at, right? So Lachelle Dozier, our executive director of SHRA, has said that there's 1,400 voucher holders who can't find units. And so a lot of people say, well, the voucher system is awful, right? Well, they've actually made a lot of changes from HUD's perspective on the voucher system. So in my zip code where I live, a voucher would cover almost $1,800 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. That's average market rate for an apartment. So if you're telling me that there's 1,400 people that have this voucher and they can't find units, that's one of the problems I want to solve for. Because I look at websites that list apartments for rent and I see almost 6,000 units for rent. And I say, okay, so we have a math issue here. Like why is it that we have people who can't find housing and we have all this housing that isn't being occupied? So when I think about what we learned from some of these other models that you've researched, where it's a certain number of days, right? We could set the timeline in such that a healthy vacancy rate should mean that a house isn't sitting vacant for a year, right? So if we say, okay, if it's vacant longer than that, either you need to be looking at that list price that you've got because you're not reaching the people who could afford it and just are looking for that unit, or there's another problem. Like that's the type of conversation that I'd like to have and hear about because I think that when I'm seeing those numbers online, it, it makes me anxious because I know that there's a lot of people who would be willing to lease apartments if it didn't cost $2,500 for a studio apartment. And, and we need to figure out how do we match what the market is supposed to do. And everybody says, let's build more units. You know, we're going to talk at 5 o'clock about being a pro-housing city. We are still the highest scoring city in the state, right, Matt? Yes. Um, not that I keep track of these sort of things. So we're doing a lot to incentivize development and to make it as easy as possible to say, we want you to build on these properties. We want you to use this. But on the other side of that, if there's no incentive to ensure that those units are getting leased up, that they're being used for housing, then we're not meeting the goal that we had when we said we want to build more units because we don't want someone to just sit on a vacant unit for a year or longer because that's not helping us either because now you've got blight, you've got people breaking in, you're getting calls for service. There's a whole other set of issues there. So I would like to keep the residential unit conversation on the table if nothing more than for exploration, right? Nothing, you're hearing me talk about things that aren't super specific because I'm still not sure what it would look like in the city of Sacramento if we were going to do this, but I do think that there's some information that we need, as you mentioned, some better data, some better, maybe more detail on how this has worked in those cities. What what kind of, have they seen more turnover in units that are vacant? Have they, what have they used their money for? Because um, it could be that we design a very unique solution here that might not include that, it might include that. But I don't want to gloss over what Greta said, which is very important, which is eventually this would need to be voter approved if we were going to go through a tax perspective, which would be exciting because then we could use it for things like spurring small business development and doing other things that weren't directly related to why we collected the money. But would be a huge, huge conversation. So we're going to need to talk about this a lot more. But I hope that's helpful in thinking about how I'm looking at this issue, which is how do we get people out of those shelters? How do we get housing vulnerable people into units? And if we're building, 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 and of course we have a lot more to build, how do we make sure that those units don't sit vacant when they're there? Because obviously that doesn't serve our goals either. Um, so that was a really robust discussion. Do you have any questions for us? Did we give you 800 things to research? Um, I thought you said, you said your work plan was really light, Greg, so we figured we'd add 50 more things. Okay. Okay. That was really helpful input. Okay. Thank you. Oh, sorry, uh, Vice Mayor, I see your hand was raising again. Go yeah. ahead. Thank you, Madam Chair. And, and uh, um, again, I think for, for me, uh, I'm more of the mind of uh, what Councilmember Kaplan mentioned. And until we see kind of resolution on the legal question on the residential side, I think the, uh, that should be tabled until, until we get kind of what that city is going through. Um, uh, but move um, of I, we, I'm fine continuing the conversation on the other on the other side of a vacant on vacant lots and uh, and what a tax would look like. But uh, and yes, it has to go through the voters. Um, 
but I do, I am wary of, of you know, what, what kind, does it create an impediment, you know, to investors coming into, into, um, uh, into our, into Sacramento, uh, unless we, all of a sudden, the city gets a huge inf infusion of money to buy those vacant lots, which, believe me, if we could, I would, so that we can better maximize them. Uh, but until then, then we're, you know, I, I want to make sure that, uh, you know, one of the questions is what kind of uh, feedback we would get on the, because at the end of the day, we want those lots being built for something productive, whether they're housing or local businesses or, or, um, or another use. Um, the other aspect, again, what objective, the question is, what's the objective we're trying to, to reach? And does it have to be a tax? I mean, I'd like to ask the question, and maybe this is, you know, for the, the Budget and Audit Committee, is, you know, are we funding code the right way? Is our code requirements for these buildings and the vacant lots, which I know we're going to have in the next discussion, um, but even for the buildings, uh, are the building codes um, at the right standard? Are, do, and, and should we be requiring more of those standards of upkeep because the impacts are all around? And then lastly, you know, our JFN program. Man, I mean, our JFN program did wonders for us on the illegal marijuana grow houses that were destroying housing access, but we were able to use that tool to actually make a huge impact at, uh, at folks who were basically taking away housing stock. So I'd like to see, you know, is, is, again, if the objective is how to maximize that, then, uh, then the response that I expect from staff, well, yes, there is the tax option, but this is what we could do on the enforcement side through civil, um, civil, uh, civil enforcement for those bad actors. Uh, is our program working appropriately? And as we'll have the conversation next, are we, um, you know, are we recouping the city's cost for uh, maintaining these buildings if we have an absentee property owner and then dealing with that issue there versus a blanket tax that affects the entire city. So I, I, I think that when we come back, I'd like to weigh those uh, those competing issues. Well, and I think we started the conversation on item six already, so maybe that means we'll move a little faster through it. But I will say, just as a note, I would love to be briefed on the San Francisco lawsuit at some point. I'm not sure the merits or what that's about. Um, I know that Oakland and Berkeley, as we've cited, have had programs that have been operating for years, so I think that would be helpful in determining what hot button issues we might want to avoid versus what we can still still talk about. And I would really like the conversation about potential impediments to investment mm -hmm. to be based on data from other cities. So we often hear, for example, stakeholders will say, well, gosh, if you regulate residential rental housing, then people are going to stop investing in the city. Well, I don't really see evidence of that in other cities that have stronger requirements than we do for affordable housing. So I think if we're going to have a conversation moving forward and look at other cities, I would love to see, like, did people stop coming to Oakland? Oakland and Berkeley when, when we did those programs or are they still seeing new development come in because we want to look at the outcomes that were achieved through these programs and, and move away a little bit from the rhetoric and look towards the data on, on what we know is happening and is not happening so we can make a more strategic path forward for our city um, and our unique situation. Oh, I'm sorry, there's Councilmember Kaplan. I just saw you top up again. Is this on this item or item six? It is on this item. I, I, I think it's important that we clarify because we're talking and we're giving direction to staff and it's not totally that we, we don't have a fully adopted rules and procedures for subcommittees and how we're handling things. So I, I think it's also important that we don't confuse staff. Um, and I, I think we should clarify because I would not want staff to move forward and spend any time 
on residential right now. I know I heard that from council member Gara, and I'm talking about let the lawsuit play out before we discuss that. And uh, council member Jennings, um, I'm not sure I was totally clear. Um, do you want staff to work on looking at a residential tax right now or wait until the lawsuit with San Francisco is clarified so we don't step into something? Because I'm, I wanna be very conscientious of how we're directing staff and the time that they're spending. No, I appreciate that, council member, and I just want to be clear that this was already direction that the council gave through the housing element to look at residential vacancy taxes, so it's not a new direction we're giving them. We're just asking them to continue exploring. Um, and, and and I am respectfully disagree that it may be a direction, but right now there's a lawsuit. And so we as council, upon evidence that has been presented to us, have the authority to direct staff of saying, we're not saying take this off and go against the housing plan, but we're saying don't spend your time right now on something that we know and have been presented that there is a lawsuit on. Let's spend it on where we really want to attack the vacant parcels and potentially vacant buildings. And when the lawsuit is clarified, um, come back to us. But I don't want staff to spend their time in wheels right now on something that the courts could totally come up with something different. Um, and I just wanna make sure that this subcommittee has given clear direction to, to staff yeah, um, well, on where they wanna spend and they wanna spend time. I appreciate that, council member. I guess my direction, just to make it super clear, was that I wanna have a conversation about what the lawsuit's about. Maybe it's about the way the vote was conducted and they violated the Brown Act, I don't know. Um, so I think that would be really helpful to have more information before we decide we need to take that off the table. Thank you. And I respectfully, again, I looked up the lawsuit being an attorney. I understand where it's going through. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to have those discussions one-on-one -on -one with um, our city attorney, uh, not have staff come back to us on, on that one. But I think today we need to say, what are we interested in having staff maximize on this? I'm not saying take residential 100% off. I'm just saying, this should not be a priority that we're looking at right now when it really is addressing blight and how we spur development. And I can tell you the Vancouver model that was adopted, that was the first to do this in Canada, is also showing that the there's, there's mixed evidence within uh, how well the residential tax is doing. So again, I wanna make sure we have the data because I think Council Member Jennings was correct in saying we need more data because are we searching for a problem that there that we that really isn't a problem and proposing a solution that isn't going to solve that and so i want to make sure when there is ongoing litigation that i have read that it has some serious valid questions regarding commerce clause and taking uh, in our constitution that it's legitimate that our that the legal field needs to look at this and it's not something our staff should be spending time on but they should be spending time as a priority vacant parcel and vacant building so I guess it just comes down to the dynamics on this committee. You know, I don't really intend to be the, the kind of chair that wants this place to be a place where we shut down ideas and discussion. Um, I'd really like this to be a place where we can continue to keep things on the table and discuss ideas and leave space for staff to, to bring things to us when they feel it's most appropriate. And we've seen that that's been how, you know, I've been conducting the business for the last couple of meetings is trying to make space for new ideas that, that come in, even if it's just one council member who brings it forward, because I just think that's 
a better way to do business. So if you'd rather us make some sort of declarative statement today to take this off the table, I see no harm in giving staff the discretion to continue to have a conversation and explore to bring something back to us when they feel ready. But if you feel that strongly, we can we can have we can decide that we want to Absolutely. give that direction. And, and I just want to clarify, um, I actually don't disagree with your direction. I am just saying as a matter of priority. So maybe I wasn't clear enough. I'm not saying we shouldn't have this conversation. I think we should. I'm just saying as a matter of staff priority, because staff will come back to us. They already know it's part of the housing of plan. Um, when the lawsuit has been addressed, I'm just saying priority as a direction should be vacant parcels and vacant lots, knowing that we can come back and have that discussion on residential. When the lawsuit, we get more information. It's just, I am talking about staff priority and staff time. Yes. I'm not talking about limiting clear. in any way, shape, or form our discussion of ideas, but helping clarify where priorities are for staff. Well, I think you've made your point very clear, and I think the comments from the council and the whole committee reflect all of our joint interest in seeing vacant lots and vacant buildings continue to be explored. So thank you so much, Greta and team, for bringing this item forward. And um, with that, I definitely want to recognize this is breaking a record for the longest law and ledge meeting that I've been to, but I'm really excited about all of the information being presented here today. Peter and Jose from the code enforcement team, would you like to come talk about item six? We've already done the introduction for you, so um, hopefully this should be a nice breezy discussion. You know, we all want to make sure you have enough money and enough authority to do what you need to do. So tell us what you think you need, Peter. Um, today we're here to uh, discuss the enforcement of vacant lots. So on May 22nd of 2018, City Council adopted Chapter 8-136 of the Sacramento City Code relating to registration of the vacant lots. The vacant lot program was established to prevent blight and ensure proper maintenance of vacant lots. Key provisions of the program include, but are not limited to, requiring the annual registration of vacant lots, requiring a local contact representative, defining nuisance vacant lots, and requiring posted signage for nuisance lots and establishing vacant lot program and nuisance lot monitoring fees. In December of 2018, City Council approved the annual vacant lot program and nuisance vacant lot fees. These fees were, these fees were cost offset to administer the program and register the properties. City Council also um, added two full-time equivalent employees at that time to administer the program. No additional code enforcement staff were added at that time to enforce the nuisance lots. The intent was to implement the program, get the re properties registered, and then evaluate the need for enforcement staff. In July of 2019, staff mailed registration notices to over 6,000 property owners. Real estate development and exclusion of lots which did not meet the criteria as defined by the code have reduced the number of properties subject to the code. Currently, approximately 36 vacant lots are currently identified each year, and of those, 2,100 um, lots actually registered. After a $500 penalty was issued, the additional 500 lots, we were able to get them to register. In turn, since we issued the penalty and they immediately registered, we, ended up, we immediately waived that penalty as not added additional fees onto the lots. 
That left us with approximately 1,000 lots that either went to appeal, went to assessment for penalties as a personal obligation, and re-recorded against the land. On January 4, 2022, staff provided an update to vacant lot program to the Law and Legislative Committee and requested direction on recommending amendments to the ordinance. Staff was um, directed to return with exemptions to the ordinance and in December 22, those exemptions were approved. There were eight exemptions now total in the code, which allows certain properties to be exempt from the registration process of the code, I'm sorry, to the permit fee of the code. It still requires the registration of each of these lots, so it did not reduce staff's time in any way, as each lot was still required to be um, registered annually and tracked. And additionally, when this was uh, proposed, we were requested, requested to come back and um, bring back enforced enhancement at that time. So after we did the uh, exclusions and we said, you know, we still need to um, bring back, how are we going to enforce this? As the, right now it's just a registration of monitoring. When the ordinance was adopted, it did not, did not provide staff for enforcement measures. This has resulted in problems with designating vacant lots as a nuisance, as they are only inspected when complaints are received. And staff is only able to focus on the complaint to achieve compliance. We have not been able to establish a monitoring program to issue monthly monitoring fees and pe or penalties when the properties are not in compliance. There have been four years of outreach, of education, of website development, of FAQs to interact with these property owners to get the properties into compliance. To improve the program, administrative, um, administrative address nuisance, and to address nuisance lots um, subject to the code and strengthen the nuisance lots, staff recommends direction on amending the vacant lot ordinance to look at monthly monitoring fees and other enforcement remedies once the notice and order has been issued. We would like to explore alternatives, including what our neighboring jurisdictions are doing. Look at the change of actions that different properties have. Should, we, um, should monitoring fees be treated as a penalty when they're only cost recovery? Currently, a monitoring fee is is treated like a penalty, the appeal process is a penalty, and so it delays any types of enforcement action and things like that. Also, should we have the tiered appeal fees with vacant lots? So a vacant lot is the lowest amount of appeal fee, but the work that staff does to prepare the case, to prepare for a hearing, to document a case, as, a, as in any case may go to a hearing or litigation, doesn't change between a vacant lot and any other housing or vacant lot case, I'm sorry, or um, code case. But we charge a significantly lower appeal fee for this. And it's based on the inspection fee being low and we compare the appeal fee by the amount of violation that we're, that we're charging. And since they're, as I said, essentially they're um, considering a inspection fee or a follow-up fee as a penalty, um, that's the reason it's done that way. The code is clear that inspection fee is a fee for cost recovery of staff's time. Any additional requirements outside of blight postings, fencing that are currently um, not to code, we would like to research those, what, what options are available for us? And the tough question, staffing and time committed to vacant lot monitoring. Currently it's not being done because we don't have the bandwidth to do it. To give you a comparison, once a year, by code, we do a weed abatement um, monitoring and enforcement. This will be coming to you in a few weeks for 
confirmation of our cost to do um, light and rubbish for the weed abatement program. During that program, three days a week for eight weeks concurrently, we have four full-time staff doing nothing but inspections of the vacant lots that have weed abatement cases. Approximately 800 hours are dedicated to that program. A total of using the weed abatement model, we, we've guessed that approximately we'll have 300 lots to monitor under the vacant lot ordinance. Looking at that, we would be over 700 to 800 hours per month of monitoring for the lots that we believe would become fall under the nuisance. And the reason we believe this is using data of how many lots are we abating under the weed abatement, how many lots are we issuing penalties annually under the weed abatement, and they don't reflect over to the vacant lots. They're only covered during that program for a small part of the year. So we have the data to show that these lot lots are a nuisance. We just don't have the complaints and the bandwidth to follow up on them to do the enforcement that's necessary. We should be looking at the types of issues we have right now on our vacant lots. To what extent do we enforce them? Codes provide that once a lot is a nuisance, we can fence it. But how large of a lot do we fence and do we follow the city's guidelines for fencing as the ordinance says? So the guidelines for fencing in the ordinance provides a wide um, array of types of fencing that can be used. Some neighborhoods don't want this fencing in their neighborhoods. Some neighborhoods don't want fencing to look like, um, you know, that we're, we're encasing people just to not see the lot. And how do we address the rubbish and such on the lots um, for abatements? So we identify the lots we know we need to abate them. But overall, we have a very small abatement fee annually that we can move towards cleaning these lots. We have a large abatement fee for weed abatement because we know it's going to cost a lot of money on vacant lots or any property, so we, we even do abatements on occupied property to clean a nuisance, to leave a property of a nuisance. What is the need for abatement? How far do we expand that? How far is the committee looking at bringing funds to do abatements? How soon do we want them done? So that's the direction we're asking for, is what research would the committee like us to do to change the ordinance, to look at enforcement? How are we going to look at staffing? Is this an enforcement model that needs to be considered? And understand that once we identify the need for staffing, which we believe is a dire need if we want to thoroughly monitor just these vacant lots, we still have the time to get staff hired, to get budgeted, to be approved for budgeting, to get into the cycle, so it is a process. And so that's kind of the, the direction we're asking the committee for, is to give us the approval or give uh, staff direction to, to start researching these um, other types of uh, cases, other types of ordinances, and bring the best enforcement models to our city. Awesome. Well, Peter, I know you just outlined a bunch of barriers, but I do want to commend you and your team for what you've been able to accomplish in these last few years. And I know I personally have been able to use this ordinance to start many an urban garden in North and South Sacramento. So there are parts that are working very well and you should toot your horn more often. Um, anyways, before we go to committee comments and questions, we have any public comment, Madam Clerk? I know a lot of people on the last item are probably commenting on both, so. Yes, Chair, I have no hands raised to okay. make public comment on this item. Well, there we go. All right, uh, Vice Mayor Garris, start us off here. You Great. Hey, that was, <laughs> I was like, we can get to it. <laughs> uh, for, yes, uh, first, you know, 
Peter and Jose, if you uh, please thank your code officers, all your team, uh, everyone that's been out there uh, for uh, for a long time, looking at how to make sure that we provide some justice for the neighborhoods that are being impacted by some of these nuisance lots. Uh, and and you know, again, I don't want to repeat, but uh, uh, but I'll be quick. I mean, the fact that. You know, we've been at this for a while. I mean, I think we started back in 2016, 2018. We finally got the first lot ordinance. We fixed it in 2002 to help some of the, the small, uh, small owners. And so now we're at this point of, like, how do we make it more effective? Because there are still, uh, frankly, some nuisance lot owners who uh, just snub their nose at this and could care less about whether their property is benefiting the community or hurting the community. Um, and so, and part of that, I think, is the appeal fee. The appeal, appeal fee is $50. And for some of them that have, you know, 10 acres, 5 acres, you know, even a half-acre lot can be devastating, uh, particularly if it becomes a, a one that becomes a fire hazard or is a perpetual place for illegal dumping. So, uh, one, I'd, I'd like to, you know, give clear staff direction to increase that, that uh, appeal fee, um, not only from $50, but let's just move the decimal point over to $500. You know, let's, you know, it, it cannot be just the cost of doing business to put the appeal fee in for 50 bucks and then make the city wait another, you know, you know, however many months it takes to go through that appeal process. We have the appeal pro process for due, due process and, and uh, an ability for folks to question and make sure that the city's doing its job, but $50 is just too limited okay. for some. Can I ask you a clarifying question? Oh, yes. So I know moving the decibel is very satisfying. I'd like it to be based on cost sure. of our time, yeah. and which might even be more than five. I mean, maybe we well, we talked we, we talked a little that? bit about this okay. actually. So okay. I think it, for the appeal process, it it came out to about four hundred and seventy five dollars okay. or whatnot. Good. So we've already done that so, part. Thank yeah. You. So I just said let's round up, make it simple. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, but I do want to thank staff for that. And and look, if if the appeal process becomes more expensive, I I, I hope that when we review this again that we look at that and uh, is, it, is it possible to make the ordinance basically like based on cost do we have to set the cost in ordinance that might be a better city attorney question i think we have to we have actually, to set the actual fee in the ordinance okay never mind yeah, we but do. don't we can't we as a city council correct me don't we do an adoption of fees that can be done annually. yearly annually? annually yeah yeah the fees uh, customarily have been established in the code but they are the amounts are established usually in a resolution Yes, that's correct. That's so if we flag that where a base, but then annually shall be set to recover actual costs. Well, uh, yes, Peter, go ahead. So fees are fees are set by council, and currently our fees for um, for appeal range from fifty dollars to five hundred dollars for appeals. Currently, there is a fee study coming forward with community development for code compliance will that will clearly outline our exact um, cost for an appeal. Yeah, and, and to that point, so I, I do want to, I want to move that. Uh, let's, you know, giving staff direction on where to go, right, you know. The other thing that I would like to um, to put in here is, uh, and this I want to thank Council Member uh, Lalowe and his staff uh, for the work on this is, uh, and they've a a actively asked for this, so I do want to give them credit, um, is uh, is uh, to, ha to ask staff to look into a report back in 60 days to the city to, for a property owner, uh, um, when they're a nuisance property, to require the installation um, of non-cyclone fencing. We don't want the, you know, that fencing that makes it look bad, but uniform fencing on nuisance vacant lots to prevent nuisance behavior 
such as illegal dumping and contribute to the beautification of the neighborhood. So those are the two factors in the standard on fencing here. One, uniformity, so that we don't have one lot and another lot trying to do whatever. I, you know, when there's a nuisance lot, that's when the city can come in and say, this is the type of fencing you will do because you've been a nuisance property owner. Um, and the two factors are one, it has to be able to prevent illegal dumping. These cheap, uh, you know, cyclone fences, they, 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 they don't matter. They, people cut them up and they, they um, you know, they use them anyways. And then second, the second factor in the, the fencing, um, and we don't want to micromanage this, so that's why we, we want to make sure that it, um, it, uh, it supports uh, and contributes to the beautification of the neighborhood. So if there are, say, four or five, we know some of those vacant lots together, we don't want to make, we want to make sure that there's uniformity so that it actually, the fencing actually improves the look and doesn't make it look worse. Um, the uh, second, uh, the, the third point that I'd like to bring up uh, is increasing the standard on the requirement of all vacant lots. Uh, I, I mentioned it before, Right now, it's like a foot high is before we even consider that a nuisance. I, I'd like staff to come back and say, this is where we think increasing the standard on all vacant lots will be. And that sends a message to these property owners. If you want to keep your vacant lot vacant, then it's gonna, there's a standard that we're going to require you to do, whether that's making keeping it uh, you know, clear of debris, dust, graded, no vegetation, or whatever it is, increase the standard on that. And the fourth and final aspect of this is full cost recovery on monitoring. I think it's uh, $275 per month right now on the monitoring fee. But the question that I have, and, uh, and I think we, we've, we started getting into this, is uh, is that the full cost recovery for our staff You know, when we have to do that? And the monitoring um, uh, goes for two years. Is that correct? Correct. Um Two years if they do not get a, another violation during that time. If they don't get a violation, so and after that, then they're they're pulled out. So we want to make sure that that you know the the standard is high in the city of Sacramento for people who are maintaining vacant lots that become a nuisance. You know, two years and that we're recovering our full cost because if we're sending a code officer to go look at a property that should be managed by that property owner, that code officer isn't responding to you know, other needs that we have in the city. And, and to me, I think that is a, that, that's an unfortunate situation. So, uh, Madam Chair, that's, I think those are the four things I'd like to make sure. One, increasing the appeal fee, move it, uh, um, and when it's appropriate to come, if either, either through the fee schedule or through a separate ordinance, because um, I think we do both, uh, is, five, is uh, moving, the, moving the decimal point over. Second, uh, looking at the uniformity of uh, uh, fencing, on nuisance vacant lots to one address the illegal dumping and uh, improving the beautification. Second, increasing the standard on uh, uh, of cleanliness on vacant lots, standard of responsibility, and finally the full cost recovery on monitoring. So, thank. You. So we want to. I think we want to increase the standard. We want you to be able to pay for all you need to do that. I'm glad to hear a fee study is forthcoming. And I know you mentioned just looking at best practices, which I think goes without saying that if you have other recommendations that you'd like to bring forward in the field that you're like, gosh, it would be really great if we could do X. I'd love to hear that too, <laughs> um, so that we can capture as much of that as we can in, in one go. Um, Councilmember Kaplan. I agree with everything you both have, have stated. Um, just a couple items because I think, Peter, your wealth of knowledge uh, and history of this, uh, please bring forward 
all best practices to us that we may miss. So I want to make sure that's all encompassed, that please bring forward what you think would help make us um, a more responsive, streamlined process, but also make sure you include where I brought it up briefly on the vacant lot program, the registration fee, that is horribly very tiny, small compared to what I looked at with other jurisdictions. So I look forward to a, a equal to what other jurisdictions have representative. Also looking to create um, a vacant building program registration because if we're talking about this, I think there's a uniformity because when you talk about vacant lots, that uniformity should also be to vacant buildings because vacant buildings could have that. And I also think um, Chairwoman Valenzuela, you brought up a great point, art. Like with vacant buildings and for, uh, storefronts, there could be that opportunity in the meantime because we know how, how long it takes to develop and look at things, especially with vacant buildings. But if we've got art and that possibility of art, I, I think as, as a spot, it should be explored of what that balance um, looks like. And I know, Peter, you and I discussed as well how do we shorten the time between an, an appeal and an enforcement? Because in Sacramento, I think we're up to over 100 days, could be more, uh, what other jurisdictions have. So it still allows individuals the right. But I think we need to be more timely. And I know that Governor Brown signed a bill like 10 years ago that actually shortened that time that I don't think the city has actually updated to be in compliance with. So. Um, those are some things I would I would hope that would come back to us for further discussion. Absolutely, and hopefully that'll help with the from the customer side as well. If there's disputes, if there's if there's challenges, if there's exemptions they feel like we're missed, you having the resources to do that work will just help everybody across the board. So, um, Vice Chair, do you have anything you want to add, or are you you're good? All right, um, three twenty. That's a good record. Councilmember Chenier like to have the shortest meetings. I'm going to have the longest meetings. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Uh, it was great conversation, yeah. though. We covered so much ground, and so really looking forward to seeing what everybody comes back with and just letting your brilliant minds do what you all do best, um, which is bring us back great ideas. Um, right now, I will leave it open to see if anybody has any public comment for items not on the agenda. I do have one hand raised to make public comment for matters not on the agenda. It's from Jared. Sorry, that was an accident. <laughs> My bad. Thank Good you. Night. <laughs> I have no hands raised for public like we've comment. We've tapped ourselves out. That's great. Right. Just in time for 5 o'clock. Any of my colleagues have anything off agenda? All right. With that, we are adjourned. Thank you. So just to clarify, 5 and 6, uh, come back to L&L. Yeah. With more. more.